Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We got a great show for you today. This will be the Sugar Bowl preview, probably the last podcast we do, uh, barring some unexpected change before the game. We have Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, checking in, talking about the game. Ole Miss made a offensive coordinator hire, Charlie Weiss Jr., right before we started recording that news broke. So we got into that, some Baylor stuff, Dave Aranda, what to expect a little bit from uh, Baylor quarterback Gary Bohannon, and uh, just some news, some notes from the weeks as I am week as I am down here in New Orleans, got here last night, went to a Pell's game. A lot of fun. Nice little story about that experience on the uh, podcast here in a second. So uh, looking forward to having a uh, fun week down here. And uh, hopefully all of you traveling down there, maybe you're in the car listening as you're uh, headed down New Orleans right now, make it safely. But uh, great show for you today. A lot of different stuff. And then on the back end of the welding conversation, I am rerunning the interview with Travis Roeder of Sikkim365. He came on beginning right after the bowl game was announced whether like second week of December provided a pretty great schematic breakdown of what Baylor likes to do on both sides of the ball and I figured I would just rerun that since we're not getting a third show this week until Sunday um, just because I think it's a great preview of the game and uh, we'll definitely kind of uh, make you smarter as uh, as this thing approaches so replaying that again because it kind of got buried late uh, on a one Friday afternoon, I think after I recorded it. So we got the welding conversation and then Travis Roeder on the back end um, in what will be the uh, Sugar Bowl preview podcast. Buckle up. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox led you to a what was that 11 and four start to the pre-Christmas bowls, tearing it up on the post-Christmas bowls as well. No one's hotter in the NFL college basketball coming off uh, two weekends of a combined up 25 units. Need to check these guys out. They printed money in the holiday season. I could have taken care of all your Christmas shopping. And then some, if you use Skybox, they got a great thread up right now on their Twitter uh, about responsible bankroll management and how not to go uh, full tilt and end up broke uh, and losing it all to your bookie. Check them out. They're going to have a picks package to pay, fit your price range, whether that's month long, season long. I'd recommend going with Skybox for the year long all sports pass. But if you're looking for something a little bit cheaper, the kind of in your price range, they're going to have a picks package for your preferred sport. Check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Giving out daily free plays in college basketball, too. If you go to skyboxsportspicks.com backslash free play that's just free money for you every day of the week uh with no additional charge you need to check them out daily pass month long whatever the case may be uh use the promo code rippy for 20 percent off let them know that we sent you podcast also brought to you by lb's university avenue across from kroger go see greg absolutely the best place in mississippi to get meat if you're a subscriber to the rippy rights podcast i mean rippy rights newsletter that's rippyrights.substack.com type in your email you get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week and discounted meats. Uh, I'll let you decide which one is more useful. But right now it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. So take advantage of that. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your bowl watching uh, weekend, whatever you're doing for New Year's. And then go find all of your own favorites at LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Great seafood, sausages, 
all kinds of different stuff. Crab stuff, mushrooms, filet burgers are fantastic. Uh, ribeye sausage is always a go-to for me. Love it. Go find your own favorites. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, here is Weldon. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg for our Sugar Bowl preview. But I guess we got a little bit of breaking news off the top, as Neil reported. I think Matt Zinitz broke the story. Neil had it right after him. Charlie Wise Jr. going to be Ole Miss's new offensive coordinator. So uh, we had a lot of different stuff. I'm in New Orleans. You are headed this way soon. How are you, my man? I'm doing fine. I'm actually outside at my house. It's sunny and 85 degrees here. And on December, what is it, the 29th? Jeez, it's just hotter and hotter and hotter. But uh, doing fine. Uh, survived the flu over the uh, – <laughs> Over the holidays, no COVID getters in this family, so that's great. And then um, just ready for Saturday. That is uh, that is always a huge plus. Yeah, it does look like a nice day outside. I am holed up in my uh, hotel room a little bit of a late evening last night, so I actually couldn't have told you what the weather was. But uh, you're only like an hour away from New Orleans, so I'm guessing the weather's the same. So I'm looking forward to a, a, a nice day out okay. here. Um, yeah, we survived the whole COVID thing, kind of annoying. It was uh, – I, I don't, did you get as annoyed as I did? Just like I, what was that stretch, I guess it was like the 26th and the 27th had bowl games canceled. And I was like, here we go at this crap again. It just it induced a gigantic eye roll from me. No, it did. And honestly, like one thing I do, I hate agreeing with Dan Wolken, but he had, a, he did have a tweet where he's like, what, like, you think these guys are trying to cancel the bowl games? Like some of these teams, like when people see all these teams, uh, with the exception of one, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But some of these other teams, like, they just they just have too many COVID players and can't play. Like, no one is trying to cancel the bowl games, uh, except for Hawaii. Hawaii is full of shit. Uh, there, I mean, there was articles coming out about Todd Graham, like, a few weeks back, saying how, like, all the players hated him. They got quotes, like, from the players and stuff. And then when they came out with the release, Memphis is already in Hawaii. Hawaii – Canceled the game because of COVID, because of injuries and transfers. Like that, no one should ever cancel a bowl game because you you're injured or, or kids are transferring. Like that's that's on you. They uh, they handled that like total nonsense. And I think they had some statement yesterday that came out that was really weird. So Hawaii is full of shit. Everyone else, they're just they uh, just have too many COVID cases and they're testing. And we can all debate on whether that should be happening or not, but that's not really our thing. So we'll stay away from that. But yeah, it, it's a little annoying. The Hawaii thing was weird. I, so I, for whatever reason, I just happened to, uh, I was at work the week before Christmas, just kind of bored at my desk. And I had an article pop up, uh, I guess on my Twitter timeline from the San Francisco gate.com. I'm guessing that's just kind of like an online pseudo newspaper media. I would obviously based out of San Francisco, but it was this gigantic expose on how much the Hawaii players just detest Todd Graham. And uh, er, and he had, like, players on record, like, as you just mentioned in outline. I was like, this is the most bizarre story, not only from the source of it. Like, why is the San Francisco columnist writing this big expose on, like, dysfunction in Hawaii's program? And, like, he got a lot of players on the record. And on top of that, no one seemed surprised. Uh, he may have had these issues, it sounded like, behind the scenes at Arizona State, I guess. But the other thing I drew from that was, like, no one seemed shocked that this was the case at all. Uh, I kind of agree with you. That seemed like a uh, just 
they canceled because their program was just in shambles and it really had little to do with COVID or maybe not a ton to do with COVID. And uh, it's unfortunate. The other one was tech call me tenfold hat here, but Texas A&M playing with a backup quarterback, or excuse me, walk on quarterback, probably not thrilled to be in the game. I don't doubt Texas A&M had COVID issues, but if that were say, uh, you know, a new year's six bowl and they were excited to be there, something tells me they would have found a way to play that sucker, but maybe that's just uh, me uh, going full conspiracy theory as well. But that was another one that kind of stuck out as like, hey, what are we doing here? But you're right. The other one, it's nobody else's fault. I do think, again, I don't want to get too much into the uh, whole COVID content here, but I do think a lot of this is due to some outdated protocols. It seems like we're still going, like, I think this is a college football leadership problem. You know, you saw the NFL, they changed their protocols. The NBA changed their protocols to try to make everything work. College football still just kind of rolling with what they did back in June and the situation could not be more different. I think it's a, uh, you know, the one thing you can take out of this is like not even just a COVID take here. I just think college football really lacks leadership. And this is another example as to why. No, absolutely. And then just to hop on that, you kind of mentioned it, but the fact that the playoff has just taken over this sport, these bowl games yep. that already meant nothing means so much less. So I understand it's, it's sad for the players that like want to play their last game if they're seniors, not going to the NFL. Like I get all that. And that, that's kind of hard to quantify, but, I get why some of these programs are like, screw this. Like, why are we – what are we doing here? Like, we're going to get players hurt for next year. This means nothing. I mean, the SEC is 0-4 right now against four, like, not good football teams. And you can say whatever you want. We'll, we can, we'll touch on that in a little bit. But, like, these teams just don't care that much. And that's not just the SEC. That's just every team. I mean, you think Nevada wanted to be in that bowl game starting at 10 o'clock in Detroit against Central Michigan? No. So when you have COVID and you have a chance to get out of it, even though I don't necessarily love it, I under completely understand why they're they've had enough of it. Yeah, and it seems like pretty much every uh, game that's gotten canceled, barring two. I know you had like the Holiday Bowl last night with you uh, said COVID issues, but it did seem funny. Like the first three games got canceled. That got canceled. The team that had COVID either hated their coach didn't really want to be there or had like, I think what Bronco Mendenhall, he was already fired in on his way out. So like there was already, I just thought it was funny. The first like three or four teams yeah. that had COVID issues. Also their program was just in complete disarray as well. But uh, anyway, we're, uh, we're going to get plenty of football. We're going to get, uh, obviously we're going to have the sugar bowl. It sounds like that's a full go, which is a positive. Let's get to this breaking news first, because uh, as I woke up late this morning, uh, not exactly on top of things, I would say, uh, really to say the least, Ole Miss made an offensive coordinator hire that I didn't even include in the show notes until right before I sent you the Zoom link. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, Neil confirms Charlie Weiss Jr. will be Ole Miss's offensive coordinator. Another pat on the back for you here when we vaguely discussed the possibilities for Ole Miss's offensive coordinator to replace Jeff Lebby. I believe the first name out of your mouth was Charlie Weiss Jr. Made sense, right? They had some history together at FAU. Uh, just kind of take this any direction you want. What do you know about Charlie Weiss Jr., and what do you think of this hire? So I, I've i never met Charlie, but I've been around a ton of people who know Charlie pretty well from uh, from his time at Alabama, and everyone loves this guy. Um, the, I only have one story. So he was – God, I think he was like 24 years old, and 24 or 23, and he's going to interview for an offensive analyst job at Alabama. And so he goes in and meets with Saban and an interview that's supposed to take like 30 minutes, 45 minutes 
ended up turning into like a five hour football, like deep dive discussion between him and Saban. Like no one saw them for five hours, like just going, you know, back and forth, back and forth, talking ball. So this kid has been around this sport for longer than anybody else. And I say kid, I think he's like the only a year or two older than me. Um, that would qualify in some senses. I was just reading yeah. a tweet from Borky, my old radio pal, and he, I think he tweeted something about the hire, and then he had a follow-up that just says, just realize he's younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he's very young, but age is, is not that big of a deal to me. If you can get have respect from your peers and your head coach and your players, whatever age you are means means nothing. Um, and he had a lot of success with Kiffin at FAU, and he had a lot more autonomy than I'm sure anybody will be willing to give credit to him just from talking to the guys that were there that came to Ole Miss. I mean, Charlie, Charlie really had a lot of influence on that offense, um, especially I think his second year there. Um, but he went to USF, that program, you know, Jeff Scott's there, and people thought he was going to do really well. I think that program has – really falling behind in like the G5 Florida schools for whatever reason. I don't know. So I wouldn't just look into that and those stats and that play and be like, oh, like this guy can't coach because that's not fair at all. And no one ever bats a thousand percent in their career. Um, so it's an interesting hire. It's it's pretty safe. Um, I don't know who else they interviewed. No one does. My guess is he probably wasn't there first, but he was definitely the floor of where this was headed. And I, I think he'd be really successful. He's get, he has more experience now. He's had to deal with a little bit of adversity. Everyone that I know loves this guy, says he's incredibly smart. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to call it a good or bad hire because that's completely irrelevant and stupid. Um, I would guess that it would be in the same model as the previous hire. I would guess this will be Charlie's offense um, with Kiffin helping and managing some game plan stuff probably, but I would imagine he does not want to do both. Charlie's going to be calling the plays if I had to guess. Yeah. So he comes from USF two and 10 this year. I think they were one and eight during their COVID year last year. That's not really, as you outlined pretty well, there. not really a great indicator of anything. I mean, if you look at this guy's resume, at what, he's 28 years old. Good God, this guy's less than two years older than me. This is, I know. This is, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to take some getting used to because it's, I'm going to look at him every time we start covering this now and be like, damn, what, what, what went wrong in my life? Um, but <laughs> he, 28 years old, already got a hell of a resume. I like that nugget you included about the saving thing, talking where it just turned into a uh, four or five hour just absolute football fest. I mean, that's the greatest coach to ever do it. And uh, if you're garnering his attention at that age, that's a uh, that's quite a note there, honestly. Because what at that point you mentioned, 24 years old, he is a kid. I mean, that's Saban has GAs that age. Hell, he might have coached a player or two that was 23, 24 years old, and yeah. captures attention like that. Pretty wild. Before this, he was a co-offensive coordinator. Excuse me, I have uh, Jeff Scott's. Uh, resume up that's probably not the way we want to go here we was with Kiffin 2018 2019 at FAU and as you mentioned probably had more autonomy in that offense probably maybe not quite got the credit which is kind of what happens uh, a little bit to the Lebby thing from an outside perspective I think one of the first things uh, 
that probably disqualifies me uh, talking to uh, football with somebody is when we talk about the Levy thing. They're like, well, Kiffin did most of it. I'm like, no, actually, not really at all. It's quite the opposite. You think it'll be a similar setup in terms of the autonomy he has? I would have to guess, and just knowing how Kiffin works, I don't think the scheme is going to – or the, the concept and the scheme is going to change all that much. I think Charlie is smart enough to kind of integrate – some of that Baylor stuff that Kiffin really likes, as well as knowing what Kiffin likes himself. Um, I, I would imagine the setup will be incredibly similar. Um, and if I had to guess, this probably won't be the end of staff changes. I don't know what else is coming, but th- that usually is the case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, no, I think it'll be a very similar setup. I don't think there's any reason with the success they've had to, to dramatically change up the change of command on, the, on that side of the ball. I, uh, I had some uh, tab issues on my second laptop here as I kind of fumbled through that last part. What I was trying to get to was pair what you that note you mentioned about Nick Saban. Well, he hired him as an offensive analyst, and that was his first job outside of uh, college, I believe. He was the team manager for Kansas from 2012 to 2014 and, um, and graduates in 15 and then gets that job. So, like, the first person that gave this guy a job out of college, Nick Saban, uh, put on a pretty quality staff there, right? Kiffin's there 2015, 2016. You now see that graphic floating around about the coaching staff Alabama had in 15 and 16. Like, that's a uh, that's a pretty good start to your career. Like, if you're talking pedigree, uh, I don't really know what, what more you could want. And you mentioned age not being a factor. Hell, young is all the rage in football these days. No one wants to hire old. You saw that in the uh, the NFL over the last couple of years. I mean, anyone who took a piss next to Sean McVay got a head coaching job. Like, youth <laughs> is kind of the movement right now. Right. And this seems like this guy's first, I don't want to say big break, because look, as you know, as well as anyone, getting into that industry is incredibly tough. I would say getting an analyst job at 24 years old with Alabama and Nick Saban's a big break, but this feels like his first major project. He is going to be in control of an SEC offense. And, you know, in terms of being an offensive coordinator, he's got two years of experience under Kiffin with Kiffin at Florida Atlantic under his belt and two seasons in the American conference. So he kind of went conference USA American. And now here's his chance to kind of run with the, uh, run with the big boys here. Yeah. Did you mention that? I think he was with the Falcons for a year. Did you say that? Yeah. So I did. I actually left that out in between. He went 15, 16, uh, as analyst at Alabama. And then you're right. He spent an offensive, uh, I think he did like some quality control and offensive analyst for the Falcons in 2017 um, as well. Yeah. I'm, do you he think good like, offensive coordinator working for the Falcons that year, if you remember? Who was, was it Sark? I think it was either Sark or Kyle Shanahan. No, you're right. Shanahan. That's the Super Bowl year, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It was Kyle Shanahan. So uh, talk about some offensive mind. This guy's worked with uh, some good ones. You mentioned it probably not being the first name, but that was kind of the same guess that I had because Kiffin is so much more well-connected in college football. It's so, I thought it was going to be nearly impossible to like forecast who he hired or actually predict who he hired because like with freeze, it was pretty easy because he didn't know a lot of people and Luke was still relatively young. It was easier to get a candidate pool. I'll put it to you that way. But uh, you know, of the three obvious names we mentioned, this was one of them. So I imagine he had to be close to the top of the list, but I'm actually surprised this happened pre-Sugar Bowl. I thought this hire would be made post-Sugar Bowl. I'm a little surprised at uh, how quickly this went. Yeah, my guess is he reached out to some guys who he had, you know, rated around the same or whatever and got his answers back. And once he got his answers back, he went with uh, a guy who I know he he likes and is confident in and is familiar with and 
Um, that always for it just always ends up being that way. You just don't see you very rarely, with the exception of Nick Saban, see guys hire people they just have no association with. You know, whether they've played against them, with them, coached with them, coached against them, there's always some sort of familiarity. And I think just to keep the continuity of what they've got going on and uh, hiring a guy he knows and knows he can trust with the offense is, is an important thing. And But like I said, I'm not going to call this a, a successful hire or a bad hire because that, that's stupid, and it's even stupid with head coaches. Um, so we just kind of have to see where it goes. But I just know him a little bit. It's, it's kind of exciting. It's his, like you said, it's his shot. So you only get so many of them in this industry, even with that last name. So we'll see what happens. Not uh, putting you on the spot here, but what do you know about his offense and what this might look like? Because when we talked about this earlier, it was uh, you mentioned that you Kiffin loves the Bryles tree and that sort of offense. I, I imagine you probably didn't watch all twelve of USF's uh, games this year as they went to two and ten in the American. What do you know, if anything, about this offense? I really don't know anything about the offense. I, I would imagine that there is going to be a lot of. Uh, discussion and figuring out what they're going to do this year on offense in the offseason. Um, whatever he ran at USF, that doesn't mean he's just going to bring it in and run that at, at Ole Miss. It, it's not that uh, simplistic when it comes to these kinds of things. People would adapt and adjust and learn the offseason. No one doesn't stop uh, like evolving on offense. Some people do and they lose. To Texas and, Tech in the Liberty Bowl. Yeah. You might say. Uh, yeah, you might say. Um, so I think he'll probably go to some conventions. He'll probably call people. They'll probably, you know, dissect and figure out what's going to work best. And of course, they have to freaking find a quarterback. So, you know, there's that also looming. So that, I think it'll be a uh, different what they ran at USF, probably more similar to what Levy was running here with a little Kiffin stuff sprinkled in. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that was probably the way to go on this as well, because, you know, it is about personnel. And Kiffin's one of the better guys in the country at adapting what he does to a personnel. Like he's the antithesis. We talked about this in contrasting Leach and Kiffin earlier in the year. He's the antithesis of the system is the system. Like he'll fit, you know, anything. I mean, last year they used to tie it in a ton, particularly early in the year because they had Kenny Oboa. Didn't really use it as much this year. You know, what he did with Drummond in the slot, he's a uh, He's as good as anyone, I think, when in terms of malleability and fitting what you do to shape your personnel. And so I don't think we're going to like I, you can make an argument. You're not going to know a ton about what this offense will look like in the spring. Like this will be a learning process all the way through the first six games next year and not to get too far ahead. But when you have a new offensive coordinator, you're going to have a new quarterback and you have not a lot of new pieces on that side of the football. Uh, Ole Miss's schedule next year plays pretty favorably into giving them some opportunity to figure that out. Uh, as we outlined, I think on the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago, you know, they play their four non-conference games, their two East opponents, and then the West in the last six games. And outside of a road trip to Georgia Tech, there's really not much, uh, not much of a gauntlet in those first six games. And so I think that will work out in their favor with so much new on offense next year. They're going to have time to figure this out without, you know, having a bad loss on the, uh, on the schedule, uh, which I think will help, you know, kind of figure this thing out, but I think we'll still be learning a month into September next year. What this looks like is my point. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think, like I said, there's going to be a lot spring and fall is going to be a lot of time in the film room trying to figure out exactly what they want to do. 
Um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that they'll figure out um, exactly the scheme they want to run and do it successfully. Um, I guess really it just is depending on who the quarterback's going to be because you can be the best you know play caller in the world. But in the SEC, if you don't have a competent quarterback, you're going to get your ass kicked. So that's really just kind of what's next. How long, how many games do you give it until there's some sort of thread on the board about how no one should trust a millennial to run offense? <laughs> it's coming. It's co- there's going to be – there's so many angles you can put with this. And he's going to have, like, one bad drive against Troy and be like, oh, this guy's so fucking young. Like, he can't – he doesn't know what he's doing. He's never done this before when that'll be f- – False by about four years. <laughs> so. the, uh, the participation trophy generation shouldn't be put in charge of an SEC offense. I can see. Uh, I can see the take now. So that's about all I had on that. I am. Uh, I'm going to kind of spend a little bit of this afternoon seeing what I can figure out about this guy. Maybe talk to some folks as uh, well. That's uh, that's always the fun side. I thought of the. I hated covering coaching searches, but when you get a guy like talking to people who worked with them and around them was uh, was always kind of fun trying to figure out more about the guy. Uh, and it also can kind of help add some context to how these things uh, might go because uh, look fair, unfair, whatever. From talking to some folks when they hired uh, Phil Longo, like how it played out was actually. Re- fairly predictable based on those conversations. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to learning more about this guy. So Charlie Weiss Jr., your new offensive coordinator, some breaking news to start off the podcast uh, today. Ole Miss does have a football game to play with Jeff Lebby, uh, his final game with Ole Miss, Matt Krause, final game with Ole Miss. I am in New Orleans. The uh, place is all sugar bowled out. The uh, the Marriott or whatever has got Ole Miss Baylor stuff all over the place. It's a, uh, going to be a fun one Ole Miss sold a ton of tickets I would bet there's probably 50,000 ish Ole Miss fans here maybe a little bit north of that I think I saw where they sold like 30 I don't want to say anything wrong they sold a ton of tickets just my buddy uh whose grandfather used to be on the Sugar Bowl committee his uh he has a contact that we used to go we get tickets from every year he said this is the most tickets requested uh in like the last 10 years for a Sugar Bowl I had heard that they sold 38,000 through the school. Please don't take that anywhere. That's just a, something I heard. I have no idea if it's true. That's just what I do is throw out the rumor mill on this podcast, but that's a lot of tickets. And uh, uh, he said, he said it's, it's a lot of tickets. Yeah. So I'm, uh, it's going to be packed house. I'm looking forward to it. I think Ole Miss will have a bit of a uh, home field advantage if there is such a thing in that, uh, in that place. Cause I don't think it'll be obviously completely full. I don't even know if they sold all, like they were selling all the top level ones, but if there's, 65,000 people in there. I bet 50, 55 of them are Ole Miss. I had heard Baylor was around the 10, 10,000 mark. So it's going to be a good atmosphere. going to be fun. We had the, uh, we've had a lot of press conference availability this week. We actually heard from Ole Miss's coordinators. I think we're going to hear from Jeff Lebby at some point on Wednesday, as you and I record this on a Wednesday morning, uh, talked to Dave Aranda on Monday. The only thing that stood out from the Baylor side, there really wasn't much from the Ole Miss side because this will shock you. Kiffin didn't look thrilled to be there and uh, did not give a lot of great answers when it came to really anything at all. Uh, but Aranda, he prodded an update on the quarterback situation. We'll start there. They are not going to have Blake Chapin or Shapin, however you say that, the backup that won them the uh, won them the Big 12 championship or was the starter in the Big 12 championship game because J- uh, Gary Bohannon missed the last two games with a hamstring injury. They will not have Shapin. He sounds like uh, he had a shoulder deal that required surgery. But it seems like Bohannon will be back to full strength. What? Uh, how much have you seen from him? What do you know about him uh, as a quarterback? Seems like a guy that doesn't make a lot of mistakes. 
Yeah, Bohannon is a, a guy we actually recruited pretty hard back in 19, I believe. Uh, he's from Arkansas. And he, he's developed into a pretty good quarterback at Baylor. Uh, he, he's athletic. He, he's got a pretty big arm. He's not the most accurate guy in the world. He's kind of a, uh, a just a dual threat, but not like a Lamar kind of dual threat, not like someone that really, really scares you with his legs. Um, but he does exactly what they want him to do, which is not turn the ball over, run the offense effectively. Uh, they've got a pretty good offense, actually. It's They've been kind of up and down because the quarterback's been changing so much, but uh, their running backs are really – they have two running backs, actually, that are really, really good players with a pretty good O-line. Uh, it's kind of their receivers where you're not – Super, super scared about them. They've got a few slot guys that are interesting. Um, so, Bohannon playing is – it's not a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it, it's probably what they were expecting. Um, and he, he's – he's going to be a problem here and there if he plays well. Yeah, I uh, I figured this would be the way it would play out. I figured with five, six weeks off that hamstring injury, I know you never know with those things, but that's about as much time as you're going to have. I mean, that's basically an off-season to fix a hamstring deal, which is kind of all you can do, right? Rest. There's That's what makes the hamstring thing so tough in season because, you know, you're trying to do everything you can to play on it, but really the only thing to do to fully heal it is rest and you can re-aggravate it. So I figured he would be pretty much at full strength. So you brought up an interesting point about uh, – I didn't know you guys kind of recruited him. I had a question about this. So – as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, I'm re-airing the uh, Travis Roeder interview. He covers uh, Baylor for like our daily Sikkim 365. I don't know. I'll find the real outlet. Point being, he provided a pretty good schematic breakdown of Baylor. And uh, I'm rerunning that interview after us uh, just because it kind of got buried on a Friday show. I thought it was a pretty interesting breakdown of what the Bears do offensively. He provided some context on Gary Bohannon. Earl, Arkansas, the smallest classification of our Arkansas high school football and he mentioned that it was kind of a guy they did they took a chance on. I think he ended up as a four-star kid, so it's not like a diamond in the rough situation. But he was saying that he ran the ball a lot in high school. Like, they didn't really know what he was as a thrower because he's just this big dude running around with a bunch of little guys. I'm just curious from a recruiting perspective, how often, like, how common is that? Do you, get, you see guys where you're like, I think this could, could be good, but I'm not sure how much we know about him because – He's either running the wing T or he's playing in private school ball. Like, I just thought it was an interesting story. This big-ass kid, 6'3", 220, is playing tiny Arkansas high school football and never really got to display what seems like a pretty big arm. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting deal because uh, if you're like that, you're probably not in that scenario, just a small school Arkansas. You're probably not getting to all these fancy camps right. all over the place. So if you don't get to those, you really can't see, like, your release, your mechanics, or just close-up picture of you throwing the ball. It's all just on film. And uh, like wing T-wise, I mean, Ole Miss recruited a uh, quarterback who ended up being a tight end, Jason Pellerin, yeah. who played who played in my division uh, in Louisiana for Catholic New Iberia, and they ran wing T. So, like, you don't really ever get to see him throw the ball except for him, like, chunking it 80 yards down to a kid that ended up playing a lot of football for ULL. Um, so it, it's kind of a difficult evaluation, um, but it's a little bit easier because you just don't see it very often. Right. You come upon it, you're like, okay, we have to evaluate this a little bit differently and look at this scheme and try to find as many plays where he's rolling out or it gets his feet set or, you know, it's not just running waggle the whole time. Um, and you, you have to break it down pretty, pretty seriously, but you don't see a whole lot of that anymore. 
and you don't see a whole lot of recruitable quarterbacks in those systems uh, either. I imagine having the body type and the measurables in that situation helps because one thing you mentioned about Pellerin, that's the dude you want leading off the bus when you come off. Right. Even, at, even at the college level, like in practice, I, he would walk by and I'd be like, holy shit, that guy's ripped. Like He just looks like a football player made in a factory. And so I imagine it, that made that evaluation a little easier. Like I know this kid's running the wing tee, but like, look at, look at this dude, absolute unit. So, <laughs> so as far as Bohannon goes, he went through almost the first half of the season without throwing an interception. I think he had like zero in the first five games through one in the sixth, something like that. You mentioned dual threat, but not like a Lamar Jackson dual threat from what I've seen from Baylor, just watching them throughout the year. And then I kind of went back and watched some parts of games as we were traveling through the holiday season. He really seems to pop up in the red zone. I think he has 70 carries on the year, but he's got nine touchdowns. They have a pretty good offense, as you mentioned, particularly in the running game. Seems like a lot of outside zone concepts and things like that. They love getting to the edge. He seems like when they get into the red zone, he adds another dimension to a run game that's already pretty tough to stop. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, they The two running backs they have, I think it's like Smith, and I cannot remember the other kid's name. Um, sorry for my bad research. They're, they're really good. Really, really good. They're as good of a two running back tandem as, as you'll find in the country, honestly assuming that they're both healthy and not opting out and playing. I do not know if they are or not. I believe they are both uh, healthy. And it, actually something I was reading right before we came on the podcast, uh, the Smith kid who I think – so you mentioned uh, Travis, uh, Travis Ebner. Is that the other kid's name? One, yeah, uh, One's, one was a linebacker. Tristan Ebner. You yeah, you're right. So that's what I was going with. Smith is a converted linebacker. I was reading a story from one of the Baylor newspapers and – the uh, offensive coordinator, LSU guy, I believe. That's uh, that's how Jeff he interacted. Grimes. Is it what Jeff Grimes? It? Yeah, Jeff Grimes came yeah. from BYU, I think, but spent a little time at LSU while Randon was there. Offensive line guy, so shockingly good run game, kind of uh, win in the trenches type of thing. He was apparently walking off the practice field one day, kind of complaining about how the run game didn't like wasn't where it needed to be and kind of – I guess, I guess lamenting to some coaches or players. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a staff meeting about how they just don't really have exactly what they need at running back yet. And some analyst who was a longtime high school football coach was like, hey, have you seen Smith run the football? Or like, I know he's a linebacker, but Abram Smith was a fantastic uh, high school running back. I believe the kid's from Abilene. And he was like, trust me, this kid's what you need, a downhill back. And next thing you know, he's got 232 carries, 1,400 yards in the Big 12, as they, I believe, led the Big 12 in rushing, maybe second. I'll double-check that. But wild story there. He's like the reverse Mark Robinson. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know the full the full uh, dynamics behind the story. But uh, regardless, they're really good. And they have a really good scheme. Jeff Grimes was like the offensive line coach at LSU for a few years then went to be the OC at BYU. I don't think he had Zach Wilson, but he may have had some time with uh, not Taysom. I don't know, but he was really good there. Aranda brought him to Baylor, and they've – you know, they're not the most flashy offense in the world, but they've won a lot of games this year. Uh, COVID year, don't that's they can't even worry about that. That's a first coach, you know, bad deal. They got the quarterback situation figured out, the running back situation, and a really good offensive line in basically one year. So I think they're a staying – they've got some staying power. Baylor's a much better job, I think, than people give it credit for. I know people will laugh at them because they're about to be, like, stuck in 
conference limbo. Um, but they've done a really good job there. They've recruited incredibly well there, considering uh, where they are in that state. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to be a tough matchup for the Ole Miss defense. They better be ready because it's going to be a different kind of offense that they've seen this year. Some of you out there listening are about to hear this from Travis and maybe for the second time, but I meant to actually ask you this the first time after I talked to this guy. I asked him about kind of Baylor's recruiting footprint and how they've recruited because, you know, they finished really – they've been in two Big 12 championship games. I know there was a little bit of dip before and right after rule, but they've been a very consistent program with a lot of highs over the last six years, even after all the Bryles mess. But they've done all of that with, I believe, a recruiting class that never finished higher than 29th. And if you take out the class that was 29th, I believe the six before that were 36th or worse. I did a dive into this about three weeks ago. So I was asking him, like, how are they doing this? Like, how how does this happen? And he mentioned Rule got in there and Rule took the approach of we're going to recruit like freak looking dudes. I I think Jason Pellerin would be a good example. Like he didn't necessarily care from a fan's eyes, I guess the, the easier to describe how highly they were rated. He wanted dudes that just look like freak athletes. And it seemed like they hit a lot of them. Just from your experience being in the industry, you kind of outlined what you thought the Baylor job was. What What is kind of their recruiting footprint from your vantage point? Because it seemed like there was some of that. There's been some carryover to that strategy with Aranda, but now they're starting to actually take some talent and win some battles over Texas A&M and Texas. Not a ton, but they're winning more than they were. And that combination seems like it's led to a bit of a talent influx. I'm just curious what you thought of Baylor while you were working in it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, they whipped us up on a, a few guys the past few years when I was working there. Um, they, they're they big, 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 big recruit Texas, recruit Texas, recruit Texas. That is kind of their footprint. They'll, they'll do a little, a few things that are different. They'll go up to like the Amarillo area, some like further West Texas, um, but really, it is East Texas, big, Dallas, Houston, huge. Um, but the way that they've done it, really, Rule may have changed up a few things, but especially when Bryles was there, they are a huge, 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 huge where are my track stats program. Okay. For receivers, for running backs, for everybody, for DBs, they want to see your, your times. You know, they, they've always had a ton of team speed on the outside and the skill positions. And they're, they are huge into looking at triple jump, 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter and stuff like that. And um, you see, I mean, they've got some guys with real speed there. Um, the running backs included, but the, the receivers, you know, they're not the most dynamic guys, but they're fast. And that is something they've always, always had. And it's something they've had a big emphasis on. Um, but they, they don't really go a whole lot of out of state. I mean, you could go look at their classes. I bet you – if they sign 25 guys, at least 18, 19 of those guys are from Texas. And um, they, they never ventured into Mississippi. Uh, I can't remember the last time they've ventured into Louisiana with the exception of Shapin. And he's like a baseball and a football guy. Um, no Tennessee, no Alabama, no California. It, it is Texas, Oklahoma, and maybe some just lower-level Arkansas guys. And that's how they've done it. But this year – and I think last year when Aranda got there, even though he's not lauded as this big recruiter, he has um, really stepped up their game and they've uh, got a great personnel group and they've recruited really well. 
this is probably a question I should have sent you pre-podcast, but honestly, I just thought of it. Do you think Texas and Texas A&M being in the SEC now or whenever that does happen with Texas, we'll kind of see how the TV and contract and all that stuff works out. Do you think that helps or hurts the Baylor job? Um, I would say it hurts. Okay. Because the SEC is just a different beast. And having Oklahoma there too, which recruits the shit out of Texas, um, that's, that's not a uh, – not a – good thing for them but for them if they as long as they beat out oklahoma state tcu smu uh houston and texas tech if they can be the best of those five programs you're going to be a top 25 program every year and if you get a few of yours from a&m and texas which is kind of what they've done they've picked and choose a few players and like gone all in and gotten them then you have a chance to be really, really good year in and year out. And they've got one of the better coaches in the state, in my opinion, by by, by kind of a lot. So that's also going to help. Uh, I know this is not a love on Baylor podcast because that's not at all how I feel about them, but they, they've done some really good things these past two years. Well, now that we've confirmed you're an LSU plant that was steering kids from <laughs> Oxford away from Oxford and to Baton Rouge, we got that settled over the holiday break after a uh, – I guess what ended up being a contract. I guess we haven't done a podcast since the uh, infamous uh, post-signing day podcast, which I thought was pretty tame, to be completely honest. But kind of put the board in a tizzy. I think that had more to do with uh, Ole Miss not closing on some guys than anything we said in front of a microphone. But that's uh, that's okay. And then our man that uh, <laughs> that uh, gave the cliff notes to the podcast for the folks that didn't listen. Uh, Took some uh, liberty. It's not exactly what we said. I'd say lack context, um, which is some famous, famous last words as you're doing PR damage. But anyway, I don't think we've done a podcast since then. Um, but Dave yeah, Aranda, Dave Aranda is a guy. LSU, obviously at LSU, called years held. The last time he was in this building, that being the Superdome, probably some pretty good memories. Won a national title there. He, I wrote this about Aranda in the newsletter on Monday. Uh, I think I started off with I try not to get overly impressed with. Uh, Football coaches just because they sound halfway articulate in front of a microphone at a press conference. But the more and more I hear that guy talk, I am impressed with him. He he seems very thoughtful. And one, he's calm. He's almost like freakishly calm and quiet. But he seems like a smart dude that puts a hell of a lot of thought into just about everything he does. What is like industry reputation of Aranda and then just what you think about him in general? Yeah, so he – completely changed LSU's defense uh, when he was there. He went for to a 3-4. He is as prepared. I mean, there was never any game where you, LSU looked like unprepared on defense or looked confused on defense. He is uh, has a complicated scheme. It's a very multiple scheme. And he game plans game by game for whoever they're playing. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they ditched their whole thing and ran drop eight for – for 85 plays. He's very malleable. Yeah, very malleable. There's stories about him having like, you know, 200 hours of footage on some of these tapes that like these coaches gets and like Dave Aranda will send his around. It's like, it takes 24 hours to watch. (laughs) Like there's, there's weird stories out there about that. And uh, he's a football nerd. And there was a lot of stuff about him never wanting to be a head coach because he didn't like that part of the job. He liked the scheming. He liked that aspect. Like, didn't love recruiting. And at Baylor, I mean, I don't know what's going on in that building, but they're recruiting really well. 
and he seems to still have that kind of coordinator mindset. Like he's so he's not uninteresting. He just doesn't have a whole lot of uh, personality. But that doesn't I, make him uninteresting because when he talks, like people listen. It's always something he's saying that that is thought provoking and different than what you expect from a, a typical head coach, especially in the state of Texas, where he has like no ties. Um, I, I don't know his industry thoughts. I think a lot of people wanted to hire him when he was at LSU, including NFL teams and other college teams. And I think the Baylor fit makes a ton of sense. You know, I don't know his religious affiliation, but that's an incredibly Baptist school. Right. Um, and that may be something that's a little more low key, a little, no, not a whole lot to do there in Waco. Maybe that's like the perfect fit for him. Um, I do know his family loved Baton Rouge, which is not something you always hear, <laughs> despite my, uh, my like my liking for this place you don't always hear people loving Baton Rouge but his family did and he did um never really heard a negative thing about it and he's doing a really good job there and I'm not really that surprised right what kind of add on what you're saying it's not even the lack of personality there's not a lot of the jock fire and brimstone football guy yeah maybe that's a better way of saying it very cerebral because when he does talk I mean, honestly, I would enjoy covering Dave Aranda just from reading the stuff like it is transcript and watching the videos this week because he answers everything like he got asked about Gary Bohannon and, you know, Lane Kiffin would have been like, well, I hope he plays. I hope all of our guys play. And he provides it to you know, instead of Aranda provides a you know, kind of five minute answer about how the hamstrings come along. We expect to have and we don't expect to have Blake. Here's why. But even just stuff about Matt Corral, like he gave a really interesting answer about, you know, Corral really just not accepting losing and you know not to devalue that aspect of it of just having a guy that's running your offense and really kind of the face of your program that really just hates losing and I know that's a cliche but that's a real thing I think sometimes is as you saw Corral will all miss to wins in a couple of games so anyway that was kind of rambling a little bit but I'm just I, I get fascinated every time like the more and more I hear him speak the other aspect of it is it does seem to make a lot of sense I don't know who Baylor's AD is I should probably know that I Sure, I could eventually think of it, but it seemed like a hire that made a lot of sense the more and more you look into this. You know, well thought out. You mentioned him not necessarily there were being rumors of him not really wanting to be a head coach because he doesn't like some of the stuff that comes with that. Uh, Another good note, Ross Dellinger wrote a story about him. I think this may have been before Big 12 championship game. Doesn't matter about amidst that two and seven season last season last year. A couple of the players came up to him was like, Hey, we need you to like rip us. Like we need you to like kind of get like rip into the team a little bit. I'm not sure I've ever heard that one before where the players are like, can you please yell at us? But that kind of goes to show is it was calm, cool mentality. The other thing that I read when reading about him this week, you mentioned him really changing the LSU defense, right? And they win a national title with it. Brody's story from the downfall of Ed Orgeron one of the notes in there was one of the reasons he hired Bo Pelini is because he wanted to go back to a four-man defensive front because he felt that was, you know, the best way to play defense. How classic at O is it to win a national championship with the 3-4 and then immediately be like, nope, 4-3 is the way to go. But th- right. How, how do you not like the results of that? I just found that to be hilarious. Like, I, that's so, I don't know. That was just like, we're going to hire Bo Pelini without interviewing him because I want to go back to a four-man front, even though I just won a national championship with the three-man front. I just found that to be funny. But, yeah, you're right. A lot of malleability, going to change a lot of things up. Um, You know, as far as the, I guess, kind of breaking down the matchup a little bit, it seems like the key, I imagine 
they will try to stifle Corral from running because I think that's where Ole Miss could kind of have an advantage if Corral ends up using his feet 10, 11, 12 times, assuming the ankle is healthy. I imagine they'll have a pretty good plan with trying to keep Corral in the pocket, particularly after probably watching him mixed in some plays with his feet against State and seeing that the ankle is, uh, you know, back to pre-Tennessee levels, I would guess. Yeah, I would, I would imagine they're not going to let Matt beat them with his feet at all. Um they're, they're going to have different looks for him. Uh, this will probably be one of the more multiple, more disguised defenses he'll play the whole season. And Miranda's got three weeks, four weeks to prepare for Ole Miss's offense. Um, and it's not going to be a mystery because Levy's coaching the game, so it's not like things are going to be that that different. Um, I, I just – I'll be interested to see who's healthy. You know, is Matt healthy? Are all the running backs playing? what's the offensive line look like and what are the receivers like, you know, if everyone's healthy, they have a chance to put it on Baylor. In my opinion. I think so too. I, I really do. Um, I, I think it's going to be, it's not going to be a home game atmosphere, but I think if it's the, the dome fits around 76, if you told me it was, you know, 65% Ole Miss fans, I would believe you. Um, what would you say? Uh, yeah, no, I was just saying I agree because one of the things that I had written down from the Aranda press conference was on the other side of it, this whole bend but don't break philosophy for Ole Miss, it actually kind of plays in – like the way Baylor runs offense, it kind of plays in their strengths because Baylor's moved the ball well between the 20s this year. They're not a terrible red zone team. I think in terms of just scoring efficiency, they were third in the Big 12, but they they did kick a decent amount of field goals. I, I imagine if you asked Aranda – or Grimes or whoever about the red zone offense. They're probably not thrilled with the amount of times they didn't come away with six. That would seem to play into Ole Miss's strengths. Let them kind of move it between the 20s, probably going to have some success in the running game. But I, I think Ole Miss has a chance to, particularly with Bohannon being a little bit limited as a passer. He seems like when that initial read there, he's really, really good. But when you kind of make him look around the field a bit, that's when he becomes a little bit more erratic. I guess what I'm getting at is I think Ole Miss kind of, playing the whole bow your neck in the red zone type of thing. I think that could play in their strength. And, you know, you hold them to a couple field goals early and create a turnover. Like, I think that could kind of jumpstart a, a route. I'm not saying Ole Miss will kill them, but I think the matchup is favorable, particularly in that sense. I agree. I mean, Baylor doesn't run a whole lot of tempo. They, uh, they will here and there, but it's not their bread and butter by any means. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I do not think that that's what they do. I've watched a few games. It's not a ton uh, of tempo. And then the flip side of that is I think Ole Miss running tempo will limit what Baylor – we talked about the malleability, what Baylor can do defensively and change up their looks. I think tempo will be huge for Ole Miss in this. I think it'll be what they do the entire game. Yep. Uh, they're not going to let Aranda sit out there and call plays and figure out – and Ron Roberts, who's the defensive coordinator, who's a, a incredibly experienced, really good coach. Uh, they're not going to let them just figure it out. They're, they're going to be running a whole lot of tempo. They're going to be going as fast as they were going earlier in the year, assuming everyone's healthy. Um, also, they Baylor has some absolutely massive defensive linemen. Huge. They have Apu Ika, who was at LSU, transferred to Baylor. That guy is he, he's Samoan. He is just ginormous. He will not be able to play 85 snaps, and you want him out as soon as possible because he – He's truly, like, one of the most underrated players in the country. He's like Jordan Davis's size, but with, like, half of the press. He, he's a problem. And they've uh, they've got some other guys in that line, like Lockhart or something. I can't remember his name. Um, but they're really big and they're physical. And you want them to have to be rotating constantly 
because they do rush the passer pretty well. Um, but I like the matchup for Ole Miss, and I believe me, if it gets out of hand, it's going to continue to get out of hand, and they're going to do whatever they can, especially on offense, to embarrass this team. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to be a blowout. I don't think that's going to be the case. But I think if things go the way they could go, it, it could get ugly. And you've hinted at this before. For those that may be listening for the first time, you're talking about the Levy Baylor angle. If they have a chance to put up 100, they're going to put up 100. Yes. <laughs> I imagine some folks driving down. Hopefully, if you're out there listening, driving to Orleans, got a little fired up and may have revved up the engine a bit upon hearing that. But uh, I will be playing every snap this game. Put it that the- way. The flip side of it, if Ole Miss, like, say this doesn't go well for Ole Miss, I think you hit on it. It will be because they can't block Baylor, particularly the pass rushing Corral's not able to drop back. They were second in the Big 12 in sacks. They were, wildly enough, they were 21 sacks behind Oklahoma State, who has a ridiculously SEC caliber good front seven. Really? They were, defense, they were yeah. second with 34. They get after the quarterback, and, you know, they're a little thin in the secondary from what I've seen, and I think our Travis made a note of that as well, but they're opportunistic. They turn teams over, but I think a lot of that is the pass rush. I think their ability to get after opposing quarterbacks all year has led to some opportunities in the secondary for interceptions. Uh, I don't know how – I looked at one point how many strip sacks they had, but it was a uh, – it was quite a few. They were up t- toward the top of the Big 12 and that as well. So, like, that, that'll be key in that sense to where – like, if it's starting to not go well, like, if Ole Miss is not blocking them early, that could be a huge red flag because I don't necessarily see that changing as the game goes on. I'm curious to see how Ole Miss combats that early on in the game. But uh, kind of la- as we kind of wind down here, last couple of things, there weren't a ton from the uh, Kiffin press conference. I, he, someone asked him about the Caden Costa suspension. No, said, they did not. Yeah, so it was, to ask that question. It wasn't a beat guy. It was a Tom's pick, dude. So I think he was classic assignment covering. Oh, uh, like the Mandeville kid. Yeah. Yeah, but it was. <laughs> this cracked me up. Kiffin said he couldn't comment on it because of HIPAA. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, which I thought was hilarious answer. Like it's just like how how can you call someone stupid to their face without actually calling them stupid? He just goes can't talk about it HIPAA. Which if I'm not mistaken. HIPAA's for doctors. I don't think doctors are allowed to release medical information on HIPAA. I do not believe, again, I'm not a doctor, that HIPAA prevents you from commenting on your quarterback failing a PED test, but uh, I could be wrong. I found that funny. Really nothing else. Kiffin said they do have some COVID issues, but I believe another outlet after that reported that Ole Miss is pretty much full go. Guys have tested out of protocols. They're uh, delaying this arrival. I think they're getting here like Wednesday or Thursday. I don't think there's a ton to be made of that, but uh, it sounds like they're okay on the COVID front and should be pretty healthy. I didn't take a ton away from really much else, <laughs> anything Kiffin said at all. I do think he uh, he places a lot of importance on this game. I think just from hearing him talk and reading between the lines, I think he views this as a showcase. It's the last major bowl game before the national title. You know, you have that weird LSU game mixed in on that Tuesday, but again, no one's Which watching I'll be that. But I <laughs> You're go- are you going to that? It's in Houston. I'm going to go. Oh, yeah. okay. That's right. Yeah, that's a. That's oh. the only reason I would go to it. It's it's a, it's in Houston, so that'll uh, that will make the uh, LSU plant theorists out there uh, very happy. Anyway, furious. Yeah, I do think Kiffin believes this is a uh, great opportunity to showcase the program. You know, they went ten and two. They got a chance to win eleven games. It's a big bowl game. I think he buys into that aspect of it, despite sounding like his dog just got shot at every press conference. I think he believes this is an opportunity to really showcase. 
uh, Ole Miss and where they're at in year two. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Now, whether that actually matters or not is a completely different conversation. Sure. I'm not sure kids really give a shit if you win 11 games anymore. It's all about the playoffs, all about the NFL, and all about NIL money. <laughs> Uh, but I do, I do buy in from a, like a fan perspective, from a national perspective of, damn, I go Ole Miss beat Baylor. They won the Sugar Bowl for the second time in five years, six years, or whatever. And uh, you know, this is just getting started. Like that, that I get from a momentum standpoint, from a media wise, why he would believe in that, why he really believes it. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a big deal. Uh, I think you just want always want to win a bowl game. Uh, it's just, it's just a great feeling i think Ole miss actually has the highest bowl winning percentage in college football Ole miss has only lost so since i've been alive and i've I been growing up going to these games since i was two years old the only bowl loss i can remember is the peach bowl but when Ole miss gets into a bowl game they win them yeah i think they do have the highest bowl winning percentage in college football uh so that's kind of a weird standard to keep up uh but, I mean, you just want to win. It's a big game. It's a big game for the program. It's it's clearly huge for the team, like the players. The players really, really, really want to win this game. If you listen to any quotes, anything they've said all week and all, you know, month preparing for it, like these guys want to kick some ass. And uh, that's awesome. It's going to be a really, really fun time down there. Uh, I'm very excited for it. Yeah, and that's that's probably a kind of a good closing note as far as this whole Miss thing is concerned. I uh, Neil's written about this. We I don't think I've talked about this enough. This is kind of the final chapter to what ended up being a very uh, kind of veteran laden, uh, tight knit team. This was a fun team to watch. I mean, we did the podcast throughout the year, and that was kind of our version of covering them. I, I mean, look, I, I started covering Ole Miss football in 2016, and I left the beat full time in 2020. Not a lot of those Ole Miss teams were a ton of fun to watch. This was a fun season and a very fun and entertaining team. And I think this is going to be kind of one last celebration of that group because they're going to lose a lot this year. You know, you worked around a lot of these guys, and I know things have changed since you left a little bit. But one of the things Neil's written about is how tight-knit and close this team seems. And I think that you, that was evident and there were no opt-outs. You know, they seem to be very um, kind of – with it, when it comes to the, you know, they were very quickly to get all to get vaccinated. A bunch of them all got boosted. I think it was in a very high percentage of that. Like they're very uh, close together. And I think that probably played in a lot to the 10 wins. I mean, look, how can you quantify how, you know, tight knit your team is and how that affects winning and losing? But I think it does to some degree. I guess that was a long winded way of saying this seems like a really close group that was a ton of fun to watch. I completely agree. I mean, there's only been so many years of, watching and working for Ole Miss football where I went into every game thinking, yeah, they can probably win this one if things go the right way. That was this year. It was and, all 12 games. I know Alabama didn't work out, but you're exactly right. I thought they could win all 12 games. I thought they had a shot in all of them. Exactly. And that you just don't get that every year from Ole Miss. And I think that's a kind of a new mindset for some Ole Miss fans. Like, oh, shit, like we're the favorite. Like we should win this game. And I think Kiffin and – Wilson Love and that whole staff did a, just a great job initially kind of letting these guys know like what the standard was going to be, what what the mindset was going to be and how things were going to change. And they bought in immediately. I mean, it was a complete culture shock for some of these guys uh, with Wilson coming in and Kiffin coming in and being like, okay, this is how we're going to run this program. This is how we're going to do it. And uh, they've stuck together for two years and they've had all this COVID crap to deal with. 
And I think that probably makes you a little bit stronger, a little bit more close-knit because you're probably around each other more than you usually would be uh, to kind of stay away from all of it. And I, I do – I have said it. I do think these guys want to win this game badly. And I think it will leave a really sour taste in kind of what they've done if they don't. And uh, that's why I really think, like, things go well. It, it could be ugly. And I'm not saying that from a homer perspective. I'm saying it from a matchup and from a – a will to win because there's been a lot of bowl games recently I've watched. I, I bet on all of them where you can tell within one or two drives who actually wants to be there. Yeah. And sometimes it's both teams, you know, and then majority of the time it's just one and you got to figure out which one that is. Um, and I definitely think Ole Miss is that one, but I, I do think Baylor is excited to be there too. It's so it's, it'll be interesting. Yep, and then the kick, and we'll probably hit more of this on the Sunday show. But the key after that is how this new, this different staff, like you're gonna have staff changes, how Kiffin and this program maintains it because there's gonna be a lot of new next year. Just last quick note on the Ole Miss, they did get the receiver from Louisville, Jordan Watkins. Um, do you know much about him at all? Uh, I was kind of oh. looking into it, not much to tell. And then I'm that made me remember when I was writing the note about it in the newsletter. They got that kid from Missouri last year that had to sit out. I literally kind of forgot he existed. Uh, what hell? What's his name? I'm gonna have to go look. Oh, it's like Knox. Yeah, Jalen Knox. Yeah, I never was even there when he showed up. I was there when we were watching his stuff and and uh, it recruited him and got him and everything. And uh, to be completely honest with you, I do not remember what he was like as a player. <laughs> But they, they they do they've hit pretty hard on the the portal. Not a whole lot of misses. They go pretty safe. They go with the more veteran guys that are, have shown they can do it this level. Um, so those two are kind of the same bread and butter with that. So it, I, I do not know much about either one of them. But uh, if they went after him and went after him hard, I, I'd be relatively confident at this point with how they've approached that. Um, I also just saw that Wilson Love is the head, <laughs> the uh, leading candidate for the Oregon strength and conditioning job. Oh, that would suck if that happened. So that would, that would be not good. I've, I've read about this before, and I actually talked to someone on the previous staff. I actually cannot remember who it was, to be completely honest. The strength and conditioning aspect of things matters more than I think a lot of people give it credit for because Ole Miss was not strong in that department, particularly at times under freeze. And Love's been a game changer. Just from someone who's worked in a football building, how would you explain to like the commoner how much that matters and how important having a good strength coach is? I mean, it is as important as any coach. I mean, I've told some people that have asked, like, I mean, I think Wilson Love might have been the most important coach Kiffin brought with him from from FAU, from how he has handled just the organization and the coaching of the strength and conditioning, the nutrition, all of it combined. I mean, he's kind of running all of it, and he is a super, super pro. He is as insane as a person I've ever met. <laughs> he is also incredibly intelligent. And when things like, you know, push comes to shove, like he really does, like, care about these kids more than anyone I've, I've – I mean, he is just – He's a pro, and losing him would be no bueno, um, very no bueno. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely something to monitor. You know, it's funny. I remember when he got hired, 
I was doing some just very basic like internet research on kind of what a little bit more about this guy. And it, I, I don't mean to rag on him, but his uh, Alabama career did not end in like the most ceremonial way possible. And one of part of that, I think, included a bar fight that uh, he was a part of. That's not really the point. The one takeaway I had is like, how drunk and idiotic do you have to be to fight that guy? I mean, just looking at him, why would you want to pick a fight with him? Right. Yeah, that would be the last person in the bar because that is the craziest, biggest guy you'll probably find in there. He uh, he, he is a, a next-level human. He truly is an energizer bunny. Uh, I just, I've never seen anyone like him. I've never met anyone like this guy. Like, he is just at all times on 100, truly. Um, but he, care, like, he loves these players, and they responded to his – kind of culture change, his changes he made immediately. And it's a different deal. And, I mean, he irreplaceable is not a word I will use with him because that is never true with anybody. But that would be an incredibly tough loss. Uh, there's no way around it. There's no, there's no, uh, no spinning that at all. Before we get to uh, the fastest-growing segment on American Soil, we'll do a quicker one because I know we're doing like a season wrap-up. Uh, I have a story, Tom. Uh, I was texting you about this last night. We went to a Pelicans game last night, right? And you're a backyard hometown team here. I know you're a big Pels guy. I had the wildest ticket experience I think I've ever had in my entire life. And working uh, in media or whatever, I went a while without actually going to many sporting events as like a fan and just buying tickets and sitting or whatever. So last night we got into town. We came in Sugar Bowl early, kind of just made a week vacation out of it. We had some dinner reservation mixed up. She wanted to go. This, my girlfriend wanted to go to this place called Pesh. Have you ever heard of that place? It's it's one of the best places down there. Unbelievable. We're going tonight. She loves it. I like it too. I'm just not a huge like food guy, so I don't like plan my trips around restaurants. You, you don't have to be, but it, it's it's as good as you can get down there. Or it's, yeah, it's fantastic. She lived in Mandible for a year, and so we went a couple of times when she lived down here. Anyway, we thought the reservations were last night. They're actually tonight. So I was like, well, shit, we got nothing to do. Let's see if the Pels are in town. So I was like, all right, sweet. They're playing the Cavs. You know, Pels, not exactly the hottest ticket in town. No Brandon Ingram, no Zion right now. So I was like, okay, these are some, I saw two tickets for like 70 bucks. And I was like, these look low-ish. Like these look pretty good view. The old seat geek stub hub view. They give you the option. I was like, whatever, I'll pull the trigger on them. So I bought them and I got an email from Vivid Seats that was like, your courtside club tickets are blah, blah, blah. He click here to accept them. I didn't think much of it. Cause I was like, these are $70 tickets. Like, I don't know what they mean by courtside club. I'm guessing that's just how they name the sections. We walked into that arena last night and I didn't know where I was going. So I asked one of the ushers and I was like, sir, where are these seats? And he was like, go right through those ropes over there. I was like, what? So we walk over and it's like a, it's the tunnel to go out onto the floor. And I was like, this is a little bit odd. So I showed him to the nice lady who was like managing that gate or whatever. And she's like, right this way, sir. Be sure to have your mask above your nose as you're walking across the baseline. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, do what now? And we got up there. These seats were on the floor. I was one, I was directly behind the Cavaliers. I think it was the Cavs. It may have, no, it was the Pels radio, uh, TV broadcast on floor level tickets. Like, I guess the second row of whatever that, uh, like, press box or baseline side of it is for 70 bucks. And I looked like a total asshole. I was in a t-shirt and a hat. We got asked four times if we were sure we were in the right seats. We had access to this little club by the Pelican locker room with cheap booze and complimentary food. 
I, I've never had a ticket experience like that in my life. I know I was texting you as it happened uh, last night. I was like, I kind of want to tweet this, but I'm going to sound like a ticket flexing douche. I have no idea how this happened. We got courtside club tickets for 70 bucks on SeatGeek three hours before the game. That's the NBA these days. It's, like, it's I don't want to say it's like not like impressive that you were no, able to. No, I know to what you mean, it. though. But when you have the worst regular season product in sports – and you have a team in the Pelicans who are young and their two best players are out and they're playing in the Christmas holidays, you're going to get whatever seat you want. They are going to pay you to come watch the games because no one gives a shit about the NBA regular season. I remember one time we went to a game and this was when they had Anthony Davis and they were pretty competitive. And me and my dad got two seats, uh, middle of the court, like five rows up for about $80, same as you. Wow. My little brother lands on his flight about 10 minutes before the game starts. They're playing the Thunder. So this is with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. So it's a pretty big ticket. Lands on his flight, gets in an Uber, goes on SeatGeek, buys a seat two rows behind us for $40. Holy and then sits with us. And I was – I always like, man, this is the Pelicans. Like, they're probably, like, the cheapest franchise in the NBA. Like, probably, like, the lowest ticket. But if you go around, I've seen people tweeting, you go to a Miami Heat game, you go to a Spurs game, you go to any game, uh, Rockets, Dallas, doesn't matter who it is. With the exception of the Lakers, Knicks, and Warriors. Right. You're going to get a low-level ticket for less than $100. It's nuts. It's nuts. And, honestly, it's a kind of a good thing because – They'll probably make more people go, and that's why they're so cheap. But it's just a it, the NBA product, especially during COVID, with all these guys are out, and obviously these guys sit out anyway whenever they feel like it. It's such shit, and I'm not surprised this is like this. I can't imagine that any of these owners are making a whole lot of money on ticket sales this year. I don't know how it goes, and I really like the NBA. I really like the Pelicans. Uh, I love the new coach. They won that game last night, which was huge, and they're, they're getting better. But it's tough to get invested in that league. Um, no, not anything political. That's that. If you if that's the case, then you know you're kind of telling on yourself, right? Uh, but it's all just because the product is so bad. These guys sit out so many games. It's like you don't even want to invest and go into a game because you have no idea who's going to play for the road team or the home team. You're just like, uh, who's out tonight? You know, when I went to the Rockets Pelicans game, and I was really excited because. I wanted to see Jalen Green play, the, the young kid for the Rockets, but just wasn't playing. No, no reason. <laughs> just, just wasn't playing that game. And that's why you are able to own – I mean, you could own the Pelicans right now. You, you could ask Benson, like, name your price. Be like, 20 grand. Like, take it. <laughs> that, that's It's just crazy. It was uh, – you're exactly right, though. I mean, a guy I work with, uh, my day job, that is, uh, wanted to take his kid – Like he's been to three Mavs games this year, and each time Luca's been out. <laughs> He's trying to get his kid to go see Luca. Like he just keeps, they keep whiffing on when he's actually going to play. I agree. I just, I was so blown away about, like, I was looking at MC and I was like, how did this happen? Because like, I, I get what you're saying about the cheap tickets part, but I, I guess I just never thought $70 tickets on StubHub or whatever, would ever lend itself to courtside club level tickets, which I will probably never get to sit in again. Uh, I just started to start, I started telling people around me, I got into crypto. Um, and that's kind of how how I made my fortune. But if I look at you, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, we did not belong. The usher asked us a couple of times, like, y'all sure you're in the right seats? I was like, we think so. Um, but 
I don't blame you for asking. So we had a good time with that. Nice comeback win for the Pels. As you mentioned, they are getting better. Um, but that's kind of the way to do it when you go to those NBA games, man. Like the the sitting that close, like when you sit high up, remember in college we went to a fraternity like date party deal and sat high up? You lose like 90% of the appeal. Half the fun or 90% of the fun of the actual game part is watching how freakishly large those guys are. And I think it's well worth forking over the extra 40 bucks to sit a little lower because – and that was a whole other deal last night. Being that low watching those dudes was insane. It's uh, – yeah, They're the greatest wild. athletes in the world. Yeah, it, it's, and they it's, they they are currently in the like shittiest run league in the world with the most hypocritical bullshit, everything. Not just like COVID wise, like everything that league does is such is nonsense these days. It's more about like Twitter and freaking you know trade deadline than it is about the actual regular season games. Like no one cares, and it's it's embarrassing. Yeah, you would think uh, the NBA is the biggest sport on earth if it went by Twitter, but ratings wise, that actually uh, is not the case at all. Let's yeah, get to. Wait, one second. You to own Christmas Day? Like, that was the NBA's day. And uh, if you give me two seconds, I'll pull it up for you. Um, so, the uh, so this guy, he does TV ratings on Twitter. Yeah. So, Christmas used to be that's, – that's the NBA's day. It's like this is when the NBA season starts. We're all in. So, NBA on ABC, Bucks Celtics got 4.9. Warriors Suns got 5.2 million. Lakers Nets got 4.8 million. The NFL played on Sunday. On Fox, the Browns Packers got 28.6 million. And the Colts Cardinals NFL Network got 12.6 million. That shows where this, this whole thing is at. You don't, can't follow Twitter. The NBA is so far behind the NFL. It's amazing. Yeah, you're, they're talking about me and you. Like, that. The, what he's talking about, I think, is you and I, because I like basketball. I'm like you. I'm not anti-NBA at all. I actually probably watch more NBA than the, like, very average, like, kind of sports fan. I don't watch a ton of it, but I watch it when it's on, that type of thing. Yeah. I didn't watch a single NBA game. I watched a bit of whatever the earliest one was because there wasn't football on yet. But there was two NFL games, and I didn't watch a second of any of the NBA games that day because – it's, it's just not as good of a product. Like, I feel like that guy's talking about people like us. Right. Everyone was hurt this Christmas. None of the games were all that interesting. And if it's not a Pelicans game, like, yeah, like I'll watch Steph if he's on and I'll watch LeBron if he's on. Besides that, I, you, a total pass, complete and utter pass. I just, I just don't care about it until the playoffs when everyone plays and actually plays hard. And it's one of the most fun sports to watch out of anything. But the regular season is terrible. Let's uh, get to the fastest growing segment on American soil. We can make this a quick check-in because I know we're probably going to do one on Sunday. Uh, Manchester City topped the Premier League, Liverpool second. Uh, kind of the Blue Bloods rising to the top. Not things Are things going well for Man U? They're, they're slipped to seventh. Were they higher? What, what's going on with your guys? What's we, going had on a, we had a terrible draw with the new Saudi-owned Newcastle United yesterday. Ooh. Yes. That's not great. Not good at all. Actually, it was really, really bad. Uh, we have the worst midfield in maybe the entire league, and it shows like every single week. Um, but we've still got that new coach. He's still figuring things out. We're only in seventh, uh, and we're only one win behind being in fifth place. West Ham lost this week. Uh, Liverpool lost yesterday, and Man City and Chelsea play today. So I think some things will kind of work themselves out. Uh, Crystal Palace and Leicester have had a, a good week or two, um, which is interesting. Those are 
you know, these are teams that are always kind of in the middle of the pack, but not a whole lot has happened. They've had COVID issues too, um, which is kind of, it's kind of on and off, like some games have been getting canceled. So the season's kind of all mixed up. I mean, some teams have played two or three less games than others. So it's kind of hard to really stay where everyone's at officially. Um, but it's, it's same old, same old, except for Arsenal has really kind of made a nice push. Newcastle threatening to climb out of the cellar there in 19. Norwich is hanging on to that 20th. They look like they've got a pretty firm grasp on that. My Bs have been somewhere between 12th and 14th place for the entire time we've done the fastest growing segment on American soil. So uh, it yeah. doesn't look like there's been much uh, there's been much change there. You tagged me in a tweet either yesterday or the day before. What uh, We're now bringing the two footballs together. We had Elijah Moore and a soccer player uh, game recognized game. Did we get a jersey swap? What was that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Quentin Williams, Elijah Moore, they had like some video with the Jets. They were doing like a little jersey swap with uh, two players from Atletico de Madrid, uh, Antoine Griezmann, who's a World Cup winner with France, and then Koke, spelled K-O-K-E, who's a bit oh. of, like a midfielder, for, a midfielder for Spain for a long time. Two really good players. They just happened to be at the Jets game. I don't know how or why, but uh, they did a cool, pretty cool video. I mean, those are pretty two – awesome football players uh, with two pretty awesome soccer players. Uh, does, so that was cool to see. Does the, is that was that, is there any tie to that at all? Does the Jets owner, a lot of these like rich uh, guys own multiple teams. They'll own like a soccer club and a football club. I was looking that up. Yeah, it does all, not appear to be the case. Just pure admiration for Elijah Moore and a uh, couple guys chopping it up over the beautiful game. That was great to see as we uh, single-handedly bring soccer to America. Did anything else stick out? I'm I literally just go through my Twitter mentions now to check up on soccer corner because I keep getting tagged in people's wins and losses uh, and stuff. I think that was about it. Yeah. Uh, Lorenzo Insigne, who is a, uh, he won the Euro cup with Italy he plays for Napoli, like one of the better teams in Serie A for some reason is going to play in the MLS next year. Uh, really? Don't, I think he's a little bit older. Maybe he just wants a huge payday. He's going to play for Toronto, which is completely out of the blue. I, I had no idea. So that was kind of interesting. And then Ricardo Pepe, your boy in Dallas, he is going to the Bundesliga in Germany to play for Wolfsburg. Shit, to, how uh, soon? Uh, like in January. So you're going to miss him. Probably. Wow, what a shame. I was going to provide <laughs> a scouting report. That sucks. Uh, yeah. So that's no, that's good, for, good for him. Sucks for you. I uh, – I, so I'm Serie A, that's the, not Series A. I, I think I called it that the two times I referred to it uh, previously. Yeah, that's, that's Italy, Bundesliga is Germany. Okay, Serie A. How did they not confuse that with the country? Um, the, <laughs> that's like the, uh, on the drive to survive. It's uh, the uh, all those British dudes on the F1. It's Grand Prix, not Grand Prix. So uh, that, exactly. that's, that's a nice litmus test for whether you know F1 or not. This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil. We'll hit it back again on Sunday. I appreciate the time, dude. You're coming down here. That's right. You'll be at the game. Yeah. I'm uh, driving up Saturday morning. So, or driving now awesome. I guess technically Saturday morning. Well, uh, it'll be a good time. Holler at me when you get here. We'll uh, have some beers, whatever, but uh, appreciate time. We'll talk again Sunday. Yep. Absolutely. See ya. And that was Weldon Rodenberg. Before we get to this rerun of the Travis Roder uh, schematic breakdown of Baylor, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Manscaped. That's right. Manscaped. You need to join the over 2 million men that trust Manscaped to handle things down there. They're here to make me time in the bathroom, your favorite time. They offer their precision tools for your jewels. Johnny, one take on that. Never had to read that. I had to read twice. Check them out. It's lawnmower 4.0 model. Nice LED light on that thing. Portable charger. 
they're uh, I heard the seventies were a wild time. They are here to make sure that is a thing of the past. You need to be all groomed and Kemp down there. Check them out. Manscaped.com. Use the promo code MPW for 20% off. All right. Here is Travis Roeder. All right. We now welcome on Travis Roeder. He covers Baylor for Sikkim365. Follow him on Twitter at Travis underscore Roeder. You do a lot of scheme stuff, which I found interesting, kind of diving into Baylor, read some stuff, even I think that you've written elsewhere previously. So I want to dive into a lot of that today and kind of get a better idea for what Ole Miss is going to try to do and what you think Baylor is going to try to do in this matchup. I appreciate you joining us, man. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I will just get right into it. Baylor leads the Big 12 in rushing this year. Really, it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot to look at them and understand that it's a lot of outside zone concepts. Your first year offensive coordinator, you wave goodbye to Larry Fedora. In your mind, what has allowed Baylor's running game to be successful, specifically um, on the edges? And it looks like a lot of zone stuff. What have you seen from them this year? Well, it's simultaneously like a very straightforward and very quick answer and also a very long answer, but I'll go with a quick one. And that is basically that uh, Baylor's 2020 offense, which was headed by Larry Fedora and also um, Jorge Munoz, who was an analyst at LSU previously and now is an analyst again there, um, was just completely and utterly and wholly incompetently managed. Uh, And that's not overstating things. I mean, uh, you just look at what they were trying to do. There was no coherence to any any part of their offense. Um, the run game didn't match with the pass game. They were kind of just trying a grab bag of different run schemes where it seemed like one week they would try and run a lot of gap stuff, which is like power and, and G lead and, and stuff like that. Um, and then the next week they would just be trying inside zone. I mean, there was, there was no identity. Um, and so the, the second half of that is that this year, the new off- offensive coordinator, Jeff Grimes, who came over from BYU, he brought his O-line coach, Eric Mateos, who's a rising star in the profession as well. And they basically just came in day one and said, look, um, they, they, they did the coach speak thing where they, they developed a moniker for their offense. They call it RBO, reliably violent offense. Fans can kind of laugh at it and be like, you know, you're, you're creating a three letter thing for your offense, whatever. But uh, a lot of times for college players, having uh, a mantra and an identity means a lot. And I think this year from day one, they said, look, we're going to run wide zone. Um, we're going to be tough. We're going to be physical. We're not going to run a lot of plays, but we're going to run the few plays we run very well. Um, and so I think it's really not that it's not much more complicated than they were terrible last year. But now they have really good coaches. They had some really good talent to work with. And, um, you know, the one thing that the new offensive line coach Eric Mateos did is came in from day one and instilled a lot of confidence in guys. Last year, they were kind of beaten down. Their old line coach was yelling at them a lot. This year, he was just like, look, you guys are, are bad. Uh, <laughs> y'all are badasses. Get after it. And uh, so sorry for the long-winded answer, but it really is more about confidence and culture than it is necessarily about scheme. Of course, everything starts with scheme, though. From a personnel standpoint up front, what was the turnover like on the offensive line? Does that remain the same? And it was just as simple as, as you mentioned, having an identity or do they get better up front? Uh, they improved. They improved, but it, I mean, it was basically the same guys. Um, they, it was just taking the same pieces and, and making them play better. And, and really, it was just about mentality. In the two, three-ish games, whether you want to count TCU in that or not, where Baylor seemed to struggle a little bit more offensively because they had a run there where they were just putting it on everyone's schedule was a little bit to do with that, but there were some decent defenses in there when they did struggle offensively at times this year. Was there a common thread in any of that? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I think a lot of it was their guard play, their left guard and right guard are clearly kind of the weak links of the offensive line. I mean, all of them played well in different spurts um, and Baylor's tackles are awesome. Their left tackle and their right tackle are just bona fide studs and their center is actually really, really good too. So saying that the left guard and right guard isn't saying they're bad players, but they're definitely um, not as good as their counterparts. And so when Baylor faced some defenses that had really, really good defensive tackle play, um, they struggled. Uh, and that was definitely the theme. Uh, I mean, it happened against Iowa State, even though Baylor beat them. And we saw that against Oklahoma State somewhat. They really had to earn all their yards. So, yeah, I mean, big, athletic, strong, interior defensive line play is going to give anybody struggles. Um, but that was what Baylor struggled with when they did struggle running the ball this year. When you look at Gary Bohannon as a quarterback, I know the, the Charlie Brewer era mercifully came to an end. Yes. It seemed <laughs> – <laughs> it it seemed like he was pretty clear cut to win this job. What did you know about Bohannon coming into this year? And does anything surprise you about what he is as a quarterback? Oh, totally. Like almost everything surprises me. I actually was a pretty big believer in Gary um, in the sense of, I believe that he could operate a very kind of competent offense for Baylor this year, but I wasn't really sure what the ceiling was. And basically all of that is because he played at the smallest classification of high school football in Arkansas. Uh, he's from a town called Earl, which is about, I think, 30 or 45 minutes west of Memphis. Um, and he basically just like ran the ball 24-7 there. Uh, he had a good arm. He has a strong arm um, and he's a great athlete. But at that level of play, as you can imagine, the offensive line play wasn't great. He was kind of just running around for his life and making things happen like things happen in small school ball. Um, and he's only a couple years from removed from that. He's only a third year college guy and he's had to play in a couple of different offenses now. So I just kind of figured as a first year starter, he very much would be eased into things as far as using his legs a lot, operating a few simple concepts and that's about it. Uh, but really from day one, he's kind of shown a great grasp for the offense. He's a tremendous leader. His teammates love him. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think just his overall kind of grasp on the offense and the fact that they haven't had to uh, spoon feed him so far. I mean, obviously with any first year quarterback, you're never going to um, give him the whole buffet, so to speak. Um, but he definitely has been able to, to put more on his plate than I figured entering the year. Give me your evaluation. I'll leave this to whichever way you want to go with it, with him as a pastor, where he struggles, where his greatest strengths are. Because as someone, I watched a few Baylor games this year, but obviously I'm not watching them every week like you are and even beyond that. <laughs> And if you just look at the raw wide receiver numbers, it seems like they're, you know, you kind of have one deep thread and then the rest of it is, is a little bit of short range stuff, just, but kind of keeping it focused on Bohannon for now, kind of give me your scouting report on him as a passer. He's a really good first year quarterback in the sense that he very clearly trusts his coaches. Um, and that's really clear from both watching the tape. And when you listen to him in interviews, he's just like a very kind of selfless and, um, a very selfless leader and works really hard and um, in the building all week leading up to games. And I say all that to say that he's uh, really good in the aspect of whatever the coaches tell him to do, like he's going to do it. So like they'll prepare in one look and they'll, they'll do the pre-snap motion. And if he gets the look defensively, they're looking for, he's going to let it rip. And, you know, 90 times out of a hundred, that's going to work out really, really well. But when defenses are able to mix things up or, or give different looks that Baylor wasn't prepared for, that's when he's been liable to throw a few balls, uh, throw a few interceptions this year. He hasn't thrown many, but the few that he has, you're kind of like, what is he doing? But it's because look, he was told if this happens, throw the ball and he does it. 
Um, so that's definitely has been his weakest, especially over the middle, uh, throwing over the middle. That's where almost all of his interceptions have happened this year. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a double, so many things in college football are double-edged swords and you love that he executes the game plan, but it definitely seems like, especially with a month to prepare, I would expect that Ole Miss is going to mix some things up and try and make him make some mistakes over the middle. I was watching some stuff earlier today on Bohannon and it was, I say that it was literally just a couple games from the big 12. I was bored at work. This may be a shot. I don't know how far it goes back. I don't know what your breadth of like knowledge is the SEC this shot in the dark, but like there was some fully healthy Bo Wallace vibes to me where Bo was a pretty competent runner, but more, more than competent runner. And when he was fully healthy, it was kind of like when he saw something, he let it rip. When he had to go beyond that, things got a little weird. I don't know if that registers with you all. And could you be completely off the mark? But I don't know why he reminded me that a little bit. He also seems to be a bigger guy. Yeah, Gary's a big guy. Uh, Bo was what, like 2015 or so, 2014? Yeah, 2014. Uh, he was like 2012 to 2014. 2014 is when they had the actual like successful year. Yeah, so I was in college back then, so I wasn't really um, as attuned to to player evaluations. But uh, I mean, I, I, if you're saying he, you know, I, I remember a bit of Bo, and uh, obviously he was a big dude and he made things happen. Uh, Gary very much is a he's a full on six three two twenty five probably. I mean, he's why like every SEC school offered him as a linebacker. Um, Interesting. And he's a big dude, and he's really athletic, really explosive, um, and has a big arm. So yeah, I mean, I, I think you and your listeners would probably know how much better than I was how much that matches with Bo. But yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. From a passing game standpoint, on the receiver end, it's interesting. Ole Miss has had. They lost Elijah Moore at receiver. They had a decent bit of, like, front-end depth. And when they started having injuries, that really struggled. And what surfaced throughout the middle of the year was that they had some talented guys, but it was an information retention thing where that offense goes really fast, and it requires a lot of receivers to do a lot of stuff at the line of scrimmage pretty quick. And they had a lot of trouble with some younger guys really kind of hammering that home, and they were really just – kind of rolling with it at certain points because they had no other option. And it looked really, really shitty at times from Baylor, from a receiver standpoint, how much does this offense replace like place line of scrimmage responsibility receiver? And what is kind of the MO from a, uh, I guess, kind of route tree identity standpoint. Yeah. um, That's another area where Baylor's done really well this year is that they have really defined roles for their wide receivers. Um, Essentially the the way Baylor's offense wants to operate um, if everything's going well for them is they're going to use their run game and then they're going to move into, you know, just max protect deep shots. And um, a lot of levels concept levels essentially just means that you have three guys moving across um, the quarterback's face. And, you know, he has a deep threat. He has an intermediate threat and a short threat. And that's kind of what a lot of Baylor's route tree ends up um, um, evolving into. Uh, Tyquan Thornton's the big guy to watch going deep. He essentially is just trying to take the, play, uh, the, the, the cap off the defense every play. That's kind of their like bread and butter stuff. Uh, what we saw in the Big 12 championship game for any fans who watched that was not that because Baylor really had to had to resort to running some spread ball. They ran a lot more kind of four and five wide receiver sets than they ever had all year, just because Oklahoma State's defense is so nasty up front um, that you really wanted to spread them out and attack that way. Uh, but I think if Baylor um, is able to operate the way you they want to and the way they have been able to most of the year, it's going to be, you know, run the ball, run the ball. And then that true play action where that quarterback has his back to the defense. Um, and maybe there's only two or three routes down the field. Uh, so yeah, anyway, all that to say that, yeah, it's not very complicated for the wide receivers there. It's basically just go routes, uh, slants, uh, posts, 
and some drags and crossers and stuff. Nothing, not not nearly amount the amount of like choice routes and stuff that I know that the the Browns levy offense needs to use. And, in that rematch with Oklahoma State last weekend, were you surprised that they came out and threw the ball as much as they did with the backup quarterback? I know that it's something that it called for because, I mean, look at Oklahoma State's defensive line. And that's something I mentioned last night or Wednesday's pod, whatever it was about. Like, I know you don't necessarily think of like staunch defenses in the Big 12, but Oklahoma State from a front seven point, front seven standpoint has some dudes. Clearly, they didn't move the ball well against them in the first time. Were you surprised at how much they came out throwing the football? really just kind of like having the balls to do it standpoint. Obviously it's like schematically sounding the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, yes and no. I was, I, I knew they had to throw the ball to move the ball at all. Uh, I figured it would be kind of in, in going back to that answer I just gave, I figured they would really kind of try and take like those max protect deep shots yeah. uh, where you have eight or nine blockers and you only have uh, two re- wide receivers kind of taking the top off the defense. Uh, but what was really cool to see Baylor do is they, uh, they basically installed a bunch of new plays in that week and uh, spread them out. And they were able to get a lot of kind of short to mid short to intermediate gains, uh, which against a defense like OSU, if you can get seven yards on first down, I mean, like you're throwing a party. Um, I've seen like in pretty much every advanced stat system, um, Oklahoma State is a top five defense nationally, which is just crazy. Um, and those same systems all have uh, Ole Miss as a top 10 offense nationally too. So uh, any listeners can know that these aren't uh, bad systems, I guess, but <laughs> anyway, it did surprise me that they spread them out and through like that. Cause that's a, yeah, like you said, it takes a lot of balls to, to trust a backup quarterback to execute a drop back game. Cause uh, you know, one thing that Dave Aranda has said in the past, which I really, I think is true is he says, you know, drop back passing, which is just straight up, just like, you know, receiving the ball and shotgun and just it, it, no play fake or anything like that. Just, just, just pure drop back game is the hardest thing to do in college football because it really it exposes your offensive tackles to pass rush. You know, these offensive linemen are in business classes or whatever throughout the week. And then, you know, not necessarily spending all week, you know, uh, preparing for blitzes and stuff. So eventually you generally get, uh, you're going to get sacked or make a mistake. So anyway, it, it was, uh, I was definitely surprised to see them execute that, but it was fun to see for sure. Kind of flipping it to the other side of the football defensively, something David Rand is known for. Uh, one of the things I've always thought was pretty interesting about him is he's pretty, uh, I guess, malleable. Like versatile is not even necessarily the right word for it, but in terms of just kind of having versatile guys and make in your collective defense having some malleability, they weren't terrible, I didn't think, defensively last year. Now, granted, this is a COVID year, hard to gauge a lot from it, but what do you think has been the biggest, I guess, difference defensively in year two and the success that they've had? Yeah, malleable is the right word. Uh, that is, I mean, if you look at all of his stops from anywhere from Hawaii to Utah State to Wisconsin to LSU, I mean, all of these defenses are different. Uh, like anybody, they're going to have some kind of core principles they always use, but Aranda is very much a kind of takes what he has and then makes the best out of it kind of guy. Um, I mean, the biggest difference from last year, like you said, they weren't terrible last year. They were just you know, kind of like everyone. Everyone had their own COVID issues to to some degree or the other. For Baylor, it was like they were playing defensive ends that should that are playing at 290 now, and they were playing at like 260 last year because they had all gotten COVID and then been out for months, and their weight was all off. And anyway, so yeah, they were an okay unit last year. Uh, the big thing this year is just their front is nasty. I mean, like like the probably the best front we've seen in the Big Twelve in a couple years now. Um, and, and it's just they control the, what any college defense wants to be able to do, or really this goes for the NFL too, is to be able to control uh, control the offensive run game. So stop the run, 
uh, while keeping two safeties back. Uh, if you can do that, it gives you so many more options with how you can defend the pass game. It just it makes it easier to disguise things pre-snaps. You can move into more coverages. You can play safer coverages, more zone. And Baylor, uh, if you kind of think of a standard offensive play, and especially for Ole Miss, if you think of a standard offensive run play as five offensive linemen and one tight end, right? So that's six blockers. Uh, and, and what Baylor's been able to do is go six on six where they have four defensive linemen and two linebackers, and they've been able to stop the run going even like that. And if you think about how gaps work, any the defense usually always has to be plus one. So to be fully gapped out against six blockers, you usually need to have seven guys, which for a lot of defenses means bringing down that safety. Uh, Baylor's been able to stop it with even numbers, which is uh, their, their, their defensive backs aren't that good this year, but their front has been so good that it's allowed them to play conservative and kind of protect those guys on the back end. It's pretty much how Ole Miss beat Texas A&M that night in Oxford, and I think that's what made the results so shocking was the manner that they were able to do it because Ole Miss should Ole Miss hadn't been able to show that sort of thing in over half a decade. If you go back and watch some Ole Misses, I mean, pick the year from 2016 to 2019, it'll make your eyes bleed. It's uh, – Pretty, pretty brutal. So that, that, but that, that was kind of a similar deal. They were able to control the line of scrimmage with keeping two guys back and Calzana just kind of got snakes in his head. It's interesting because Baylor turns defense opposing opponents over pretty much. I think they led or second in the big 12 in interceptions. Do you think that's a product of the defensive front? I know they have a couple really good safeties back there, but the way you talk about the defensive front, it seems like they're putting quarterbacks in stressful situations and you got athletic guys back there to make them pay for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, I think anytime you force college quarterbacks to throw into contested zones a lot, it's just going to happen because, you know, college quarterbacks aren't pro guys. They're going to make mistakes. I mean, that was exactly what we saw with them turning Spencer Sanders, uh, Oklahoma State's quarterback over four times. I mean, it was just a matter of, look, if he drops back and throws 30 times, he's going to throw three or four picks. It's just what he does. Um, so a lot of it is that just being able to, the more you can play conservative coverages, the more opportunities you give yourself. Um, and the other thing is, you know, what, what Aranda really has made kind of the core principle of his defense that he does no matter the scheme and no matter the personnel is he runs what are called simulated pressures or creepers, or you'll have a lot coaches use lots of different terms for it, but essentially all it means is Aranda is a, Aranda's defenses are a thousand different ways to rush for. Uh, he might start with four guys on the line, but he plays a lot of games with who actually ends up being the final four rushing. Um, and so what that does is a lot of times can confuse quarterbacks as, to far as, who, as far as who is involved in the pass defense and who is actually rushing. And, and that's what can lead to those crucial mistakes. He's as good as anyone from a X's and O's standpoint. What's interesting to me, I mean, you got to have players to do it. And Baylor goes, you know, 11 and two this year, they win the big 12. What's been fascinating to me, I did, I, calling it a deep dive would be completely disingenuous. I went and toggled the 247 thing for 10 recruiting classes or whatever. Yeah. It, particularly the last three, I mean, they've had one class inside the top 30, according to 247's composite in the last four or five years. That I, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think they only had one inside the top 25 in the last decade. But just strictly as it pertains to a random or the end of rule, kind of this current talent cycle, how, like what is their recruiting footprint and how are they finding guys? Because you mentioned their front is very good, but it doesn't necessarily seem to add up from a, you know, strictly look at what this is on signing day versus how it's translating a year or two later. Is it player development? How, how are they doing this? It's a really specific strategy that um, rule really uh, Matt rule instituted while he was at Baylor, which was they had a recruiting director who's actually moved on to um, Texas tech now. 
Um, and they had this very kind of Is that strange, Maguire? Like, uh, no, so no, so Maguire, Maguire took him. Ma- yeah, exactly. Um, this was a guy who just worked purely in recruiting. Okay. Um, but they had a system where it very much was like this guy's mantra was see a stud, offer a stud. Uh, and they were huge, uh, they were huge into testing. And rule was such a kind of an aggro, uh, egotistical, and I mean that like in the best sense of the way for for college coaches or for for coaches, you know, coaches that really have to have an ego in many respects. And a lot of college coaches are willing to say that they're the they're willing to be the first offer for guys and that they can find guys and stuff like that. But rule would straight up go to a guy who had one offer from an FCS school and trust his eyes and be like, no, this guy's a stud. Um, and so what, what ended up happening there is they would take a lot of commits from guys who had like no offers, uh, but were bona fide studs. And then once they commit to Baylor, uh, really just wouldn't get reevaluated by recruiting services because there's just not a lot of money in that for, for them. And anyway, all that to say, and they were also really big into testing. So like, for example, I mean, uh, they've got a guy on their team named Gabe Hall, who's a defensive end, who's probably one of uh Easily, he's going to be one of the best defensive linemen that Ole Miss faces this year. Um, he's just he's just a verified stud. He was a mid three star prospect, but he's 6'5", 290 and has plus plus length as far as like arm length and stuff like that goes. And he's in year four of the program right now. And he was a guy who was really raw out of high school, but he is very much will measure up as a top tier like NFL defensive lineman as far as his measurables go. Um, and so anyway, all that to say that like they kind of very much took a diamonds in the rough type of approach. They took chances on guys when they didn't have a lot of offers and they took chances on guys who had a lot of athleticism, but maybe hadn't played a lot of football before. Um, and I think it was a smart strategy because if you just kind of go ho-hum and try and compete with the with the top dogs, you're not going to win a lot of those matchups. They kind of went for that approach. And I'll be curious to see how Aranda continues to you can see that he's definitely continued to implement it in some ways, but every coach has to put their own stamp on things. But anyway, that was probably too long of an answer for your listeners to care about Baylor football recruiting. But anyway, not at all, particularly, I mean, shit, it's recruiting. Look at our message board right now. Recruiting <laughs> is literally the only thing anyone cares about it. Like it's fascinating. And you mentioned that concerted strategy and just with like the history of Baylor, because they've been a good program. Look, I know a lot of stuff has happened. You've got coaching cover, but I mean, look for a decade and a half, they've been a good program. Now, how does that strategy play not that it matters, but I'm just curious from like a fan base psyche. Like I imagine the first like a class and a half at least where they're offering these guys that are not well known. You're like, like is there a point where you're like, what the hell are we doing? Like, like how did that translate? And at what point was like that trust built? Where like actually this this shit works. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've always one of the first kind of things I got into when I started writing about college football like five, six, seven years ago was doing recruiting about evaluations. Um, and so I loved it from the start because I was like, oh, like I've always loved finding like guys that are unranked and realizing that they're actually really good players. So I loved it from the start because you could tell they were offering really good kids. But obviously recruiting is like it's like the uh, like the Pandora's box as far as like yeah. opinions. You'll always find people who love and hate anything. You're never going to find agreement on anything. I think um, the moment that any of these kids don't pan out and, and that was the risk under rule system was like. You know, sometimes when you take flyers on super athletes who hadn't played a lot of football, like they're just not going to work out. Um, it's a very kind of boomer bust kind of thing. And, and so guys would be quick to say, oh, look at this guy who didn't work out or anyway. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any one strategy that all fans will get behind. Uh, I think obviously if you're a Baylor fan, you would love to just be able to win a, win a bunch of head to head battles with Texas and Texas A&M. Uh, Baylor does do that a few, for a few kids every year, but if you try and fill out your class just going for the same guys that Texas and Texas A&M are going after, you're not going to have a good time. 
is there one guy on so for Ole Miss? I think it's pretty obvious that it was Jake Springer because he missed four games, and you look at the defensive numbers without him versus with him. Is there one guy that makes this defense go just in terms of like the most important player on that side, or is that system not necessarily function that way? I mean, I think to some degree, there's you know. Yes, yes and no. Um, they were missing Terrell Bernard, who's their middle linebacker, their inside linebacker for a while this year, and there was a definite difference with him in and out. It's kind of hard not to start up front. Um, Apu Aika is Baylor's nose tackle. He's legitimately probably like 370 pounds and probably is the quickest defensive lineman on the team. Like, I'm not, I'm not making that up. I mean, it, it's, it's insane. He was a high four-star recruit who actually went to LSU, and he was recruited by Aranda there. And he ended up transferring when LSU brought in Bo Pelini and tried to force him into a position that he didn't want to play. And that was much to Baylor's benefit. I mean, he's a verified freak, um, like straight up. Uh, so it's kind of hard not to start with him just because anytime you have a difference maker right there on the nose that can just bowl over the center every play, uh, that's big. But I really think it all starts up front with Baylor. So Ika, who's the nose tackle, and then that guy, Gabe Hall, I mentioned a, a few questions back. He's a defensive end. Those two, along with the inside linebacker, Bernard, have really been incredibly disruptive on every play. And I think would be at the, you know, if I had to create a list of four or five guys that are most crucial for Baylor to keep healthy, they, those three would all be on it for sure. I'm kind of bouncing around here at the tail end of this, just like kind of looking at questions I missed. But the in the line with that strategy we're talking about, the kid that made the stop at the end of the game last week. Yeah. I mean, that was like a shitty sports movie ending. Like you could not have made it as yeah. dramatic. I couldn't have made it any more dramatic. That kid was a former walk-on, right? Does that fall in line with that sort of, con I guess, concerted strategy you were talking about? Yeah, it was interesting because uh, he came on as a walk-on and Rule, who um, he said, he had, I remember in a press conference one time, he was like, look, we've got a kid who's a walk-on who just ran a 4 3 9 um, And it's because he's like 5'8". So he wasn't a tall kid. And uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, it showed that even in their walk ons, they were like, we're not going to take you unless you're super fast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was cool for him because he's kind of bounced around. He's been an on and off again starter. One of those kids who got put on scholarship. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in evaluations like I think you can afford to take a flyer on three or four kids in your class every year who might not be super athletes, but are just like straight up football players. I think you can have a handful of guys on your team that are like that. Um, but one thing that I still firmly believe in, um, and I think that a lot of the guys on the Baylor squad show uh, that were recruited by rule um, is like, dude, speed is speed and uh, measurables are measurables. Length is length. And at the end of the day, like no amount of toughness would have uh, ran down OSU's running back. <laughs> like that guy had some speed. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty beneficial there. Kind of looking at it from a matchup specific standpoint, Baylor's pretty, as you mentioned, as stout as anyone Ole Miss will face this year, you know, Sands, Texas A&M, Alabama, kind of up in that range up front. If there's a, like, as you look at it, and I'm sure you, there's still more time to like get into it, but like, I guess if, if there was a way you you would fear that Ole Miss would get after Baylor offensively, is there something that they do that you would think they're susceptible to? Because Ole Miss kind of goes as the running game goes. They've been able to manufacture it in other ways because they're actually pretty weak on the interior offensive line. But if that's taken away, like they become a much different offense. What have you seen so far in terms of that matchup? Miranda, like anytime you play with two safeties back, like Baylor has wanted to do this year, you just kind of are forfeiting the QB run game. Because as we talked about earlier, like you're already at a disadvantage in the running back run game as numbers go. 
And if you add the QB into that number, like you really can outnumber the defense at the point of attack. Um, does that mean you're going to get a touchdown every time you run the ball? No, but I'll be really curious to see, like people have been asking me whether Corral is going to play. And I guess that's a point of discussion. I hadn't even thought about it. That um, is a yes. Okay. Okay. So that he, has he come out and said that? Yeah, he, he kind of – it was one of those things after the bowl game. I don't know where that got misconstrued because I actually did see a couple of headlines about that. He was like, look, if I'm healthy, I'm playing. So, okay. like, he's healthy, so he'll he'll give it a go. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, I mean, and he seems like a, like a, I love football players that got a little arrogant streak to him. Like, yeah. maybe, I, maybe I wouldn't want my son to be Matt Corral, but, like, <laughs> I like watching him play football, you yeah, know. for sure. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't say that to disparage him at all. I know nothing about him, but I just mean like, I, I like, like with Baker Mayfield and stuff like that too. It's like, I like players that play a little F you attitude on the field is what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, it's so all that to say, he seems like a guy who's probably not going to like one question we always have in these bowl games is like, whether guys are going to play to protect themselves or whatever like that. It seems like Corral, like if he's playing, he's, he's one of those guys that he only knows one speed and that's full go. Um, so I think if all almost wants to run him, uh, and run him a lot they'll probably have a good amount of ex- success with it because it's just one thing that like Baylor's willing to get up give up and Aranda uh, would probably say look if you want to give him up to taking 15 shots this game fine you know I bet he won't get up from one of them or whatever let is like that or it'll make him throw the ball worse but that is definitely just like schematically the advantage of the, is there and I think that's a big thing to watch because almost his offense doesn't really work um and I say Ole Miss, so, so the, any kind of heavy RPO system or any heavy vertical system doesn't really work unless you can get teams out of too high because the entire idea is to, get, is to push teams down against the run, get them into a single high safety look, and that's when you really attack them up the seam and downfield with verticals. Um, so I think Ole Miss is not going to probably be able to get much done on the running back run game, and so I think watching whether they're willing to run Corral a lot is going to be a big thing because I think that's going to be their primary way that they can really get the ball moving on the ground. It's a Kiffin's a big believer in the Bryles system. I mean, the the last couple of guys he's had as offensive coordinators that Bryles offense, whether it's Lebby or you know whomever, it's it's so it's I'm sure it's something that watching Baylor football as long as you guys are familiar with as well. Kind of on the flip side of that, what do you think Baylor could do offensively to give Ole Miss problems? They're a weird defense. You look at it numbers wise, you're like Jesus, these guys suck. But like the last like five six games of the year. They developed a pass rush. They actually kind of carried the team for a month. So they're a bizarre defense if you just look at it from a statistic standpoint. But what do you think Baylor could do to exploit Ole Miss? Uh, Brian, I'm a firm believer in never pull things out of your ass. And I'll be honest, I have not <laughs> looked at that yet. Uh, yeah, it's just like one of those things where I know I still have three weeks to look. No, at yeah, for defense, sure. So I haven't done it yet. So I'd rather not lie to your listeners. Um, I know, I, as you were saying, though, I know the numbers. Um so uh, I guess I, instead of me talking for two minutes, maybe you could give the lowdown on uh, what's up with them giving up so many rush yards if you think they're actually playing decently up front right now. It's, it's bizarre because a lot of that came in the beginning of the year. And even some of the games, if you look at it, when they give up, like I think they gave up like 221 at Tennessee, but Tennessee ran the ball 56 times because yeah. they couldn't really do much else. And so it was a lot of that. And I think the biggest difference between them in the second half of the year and the first half is one, they got the Springer kid back who there's not much that sticks out about him on paper, but Jesus, that kid has good instincts. And he's very active at the line of scrimmage that helped in the run game. And they were very, for whatever reason, much more comfortable blitzing when he came back. And they had two guys, Sam Williams, who's made himself a lot of money from a draft status standpoint this year, really emerged into a more consistent threat. And they had another younger kid come along on the other side. And When you have a pass rush, you have a chance. And I think that's really what changed 
change for that defense this year. And so even when they've given up some yards defensively, they keep everything in front of them. They don't give up very many big plays, and they've been good enough in the second half of the year against the run to force some pretty average quarterbacks into obvious passing situations, I think. So when you do, first of all, I appreciate the answer. Not <laughs> Knowing what you don't know, I appreciate it because, I mean, I mean, hell, I'm guilty of it sometimes. You know, nine times out of ten, someone will just pull something out of your ass, as you mentioned. So I do appreciate that. But, like, when you look at their numbers and then when you dive into it, you'll be like, I don't understand this. And it's, it's very much a, like, October – 10th whatever after the Arkansas game was on and it's it's an interesting uh dynamic I got that's interesting because one thing one thing every team has to adjust against is against Baylor is how I talked about earlier about the drop pack passing Baylor actually I think their offensive line has given up the fewest amount of sacks in all of college college football this year and it's not because they're the world's best pass protectors I mean far from it I mean they're good they're fine but they're not the best pass protecting unit in college football the big thing is just that they only drop back pass maybe 10 times a game. So if they're running 80 plays, they're running 50 run plays, they're running 25 play action and rollout plays and maybe 10 to 15 true drop back game. So teams that have a lot of edge pressure um, or guys that like to just feast off the edge, a lot of times really have to adjust to kind of uh, that's just not going to be their game. They're going to, it's very much more like attacking play action and stuff like that and not just purely kind of getting off the ball on the snap. So that'll be something to watch. Dude, I appreciate this. This is awesome stuff. I got to ask that. I probably should have started with this. What is your background? How did you get into the, I guess, kind of, I mean, obviously it looks like you, I mean, it sounds like you watch tape. How did you get into all of this? And because, I mean, I learned a lot of football just sitting here for 35 minutes. What was your background? How did you get into this? Um, it's kind of just, uh, it's a tough question or it's not a tough question to answer, but it's, it's not a sexy answer. I mean, football is just one of those things. You just have to learn piece by piece. Like, it's like eating pancakes, man. If you try and eat 30 pancakes in a sitting, you're going to have a bad time, right? Like you just got to eat one pancake at a time. Um, one can pancake per day or whatever it is. And anyway, so I say all that to say, like, you know, I went to college back and I started in 2011. Um, and then after I graduated, I started kind of doing a few articles and stuff like that. And, and I've always just been one of those dudes that like, anything I'm interested in, I kind of go full to the max. So I don't have a lot of interest, but what I do get interested in, I go all the way. But anyway, all that to say, like, the fun thing is just, there's so much information out there now. And there's so, so many great resources. And I would just encourage anybody who loves the game and wants to know more about it. Like things seem so like opaque and hazy when you first start, but it's, it's like the pancakes thing. I was just saying, you can't learn everything in one day. So just like, Hey, like this commentator used this word. I've never heard it before. What does that mean? Just look it up and you'll probably forget it the next day. And then you'll have to look it up the next week. But after you look it up 30 times, then you'll remember it. Like that's how it is. And, and that's just how it is kind of over the years, you just build up stuff. And uh, I think if you like listening to coaches speak, like there's never been a better time. Like you can literally just like YouTube a video of like Nick Saban talking about how they pass off route combos and stuff like that. I mean, even, even stuff like that for me is difficult, but Anyway, all that to say, there's a lot of information out there, but I would just say, like, if you are interested in it, don't get overwhelmed at first. Just be like, look, this is a process and, and I'll be a lot smarter day by day, but you're not going to wake up at, and read one book and all of a sudden understand football. That's just not how it works. Well, I got smarter. Hopefully our listeners did too. This was fantastic stuff, man. I appreciate the time and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime soon. Thanks, Brian. And that was Travis Roeder. Thought it was just useful to play that interview again. I learned a lot about Baylor the first time talking to him. Maybe you missed it the first time. Maybe you heard it again. And you're uh, now doubly smart as you head into uh, the Superdome on Saturday night. Impress all your friends.
So that'll do it for the podcast today. Appreciate you guys listening and making us a part of your uh, drive traveling or your commute, or maybe you're stuck at work. I really appreciate it. It's been a uh, fun year for the podcast. It really kind of blows my mind how uh, quickly all of this has grown over the last year as we kind of wind down 2021. I know I started this whole thing in uh, March of last year, but as we uh, in the year 2021, it uh, just kind of blows my mind to think how fast everything's gone. Very grateful to Chase Neal for the opportunity at Rebel Grove, which really actually turned this into a uh, real thing worth reading and worth uh, wanting to advertise to. So uh, I really appreciate that. It really uh, beyond my wildest dreams that we uh, would ever end up here in this short amount of time. And you guys are responsible for that because if no one listened, we, uh, we wouldn't have a very good business model here. So you guys are really the tip of the spear of this operation. And I, uh, I appreciate you listening, making us a part of your day, a part of your week. It, it really means a lot. Looking forward to interacting with some folks throughout the week. And uh, a lot of great things on the horizon for the podcast and the newsletter in 2022. So looking forward to that as well. Thank you again. I uh, really appreciate it. I don't say that enough. And we will uh, we'll catch you again post-Sugar Bowl.